This is not the media. This is hell. Hi, it's producer Alex. Uh, I have to make this quick to keep the show under four hours. Okay, it is the Best of Capitalism Part 2, a celebration of the content tag Capitalism on This Is Hell in the year 2018. We are back to live shows next week, uh, but this week. Writer and host of the recommended podcast Working People, Maximilian Alvarez, explores the sanctity of waste and ownership in the digital era. Policy researcher Stacy Mitchell examines the rise and the risk of Amazon's ascendant monopoly. Writer Adam Kotzko explains why we are all trapped in the moral logic of neoliberalism. Writer Pavlos Rufos dives deep into eight years of managed disaster for the Greek people under Europe's austerity regime. And in a moment of truth, Jeff Dorchin bites the invisible hand that feeds. First, Jeff Mann and Joel Wainwright explore the possible political and economic futures of a planet under rapid climate change. Climate change is happening, and it may already be in a state where it is completely outside of our control. And its impact is going to be a lot more intense a lot sooner than we thought, which means we got to start thinking about the world in our climate change future. And here to help us do that, Joel Wainwright and Jeff Mann are co-authors of Climate Leviathan, a political theory of our planetary future. So first, welcome to This Is Hell, Joel. Hey, thanks, Chuck. It's great to be here. Joel Wainwright is Associate Professor of Geography at Ohio State University. Uh, He is the author of Geopiracy, Oaxaca, Militant Empiricism, and Geographical Thought, which won the Association of American Geographers Blout Award in recognition of innovative scholarship in cultural and political ecology. Also joining us is Jeff Mann. Welcome back to This Is Hell, Jeff. Thanks. Thanks a lot, Chuck. Jeff Mann is director of the Center for Global Political Economy at Simon Fraser University in Vancouver. You may remember Jeff being on our show in the past when we talked about uh, his book, which has possibly one of the best titles ever, In the Long Run, We're All Dead, which is an interview that you can currently find at our website, thisishell.com. And you can follow Jeff on Twitter at Jeff P. Mann. That's G-E-O-F-F-P-M-A-N-N. Joel, let's start with you as you are not a returning guest. You write that for most of our lives, we have thought of climate change as a threat looming on the horizon, a challenge that would perhaps soon need to be faced. Those days are past today all around the world. The menace we worried about is no longer merely potential, but has rapidly materialize. Then why isn't climate change the top story of the news every freaking night? If it's already happening, it's going to get a lot worse. What explains to you how we can still have a presidential administration that wants to eliminate fuel efficiency standards on cars, for example, and that those climate change causing actions are seen uh, to a significant portion of the U.S. voting public as a good thing? If, if, it, if climate change has gotten so bad, how can we have so many people who simply believe it's not happening? That's a tough question to answer, Chuck. It's a good one to start with. Uh, I would say in the first instance, you have the fact that in a capitalist society, people intuitively recognize that to, to, to quickly confront climate change means decarbonizing the economy. I mean, simply put, climate change is caused by changes to the atmosphere that come about when humans take things out of the Earth's crust fossil fuels like uh, coal and gas and oil, and burn them to power the economy and then, you know, put more CO2 and CH4 in the atmosphere. So at an intuitive level, when people figure out that that's the basic problem, it starts to to ask them to confront basic questions about how the society is organized. And, you know, let's be honest, in the political climate the world has been in 
since uh, climate change was really discovered and became front page news. Uh, the people's political imaginations have not been broad enough uh, or left enough to really imagine how we would go about quickly restructuring uh, the world's economy and political life to pull that off. And then that's a, that's a kind of general answer, but since you specifically directed us towards the question of the USA and the current president, Chuck, I'll just say that here in the United States, we have the additional problem of being the home of many of the world's largest fossil fuel corporations, who, as is now you know, well-documented, well-known, uh, have spent an awful lot of money lobbying uh, uh, to change how people in the United States understand climate change through the so-called denialist phenomenon. Uh, but, the, you know, it's easy to get upset about denialism and entirely understandable, correct, to do so. We, it's something we have to confront. But it's also worth recalling that there are plenty of other societies in other parts of the world where we don't have large fossil fuel companies funding denialism, where we haven't seen, uh, for instance, high carbon taxes that would rein in fossil fuel uh, uh, use. So it's it's important to, to, to maintain a broader view. And here, this is where we have to pay attention to matters like capitalism and ideology. Jeff, uh, to what extent do you think the fact that climate change's first victims are the relatively poor and powerless leads to any underreporting of climate change's impact? Do we distance ourselves psychically somehow from climate change because the first people who are being affected are the other? Absolutely, I, I think it's I think it's sort of irrefutable. Uh, that, that the problem can be so great as it already is and affect literally millions of people. And it, to be barely, if at all, mentioned in mainstream media, uh, various other fora that we might come across in our everyday lives and, you know, these sort of privileged parts of the world in which we live. It's, a, it's absolutely a function of its, not just its distance, but its apparent uh, irrelevance to our lives. And I, you know, in no way mean to endorse that it is irrelevant, but, but it, it is a way that the lives Joel just described, those lives work apparently millions of miles from the lives of poor in, in, in Africa or Southeast Asia. But these regions are already, you know, dealing with not just the signs of future troubles and terrors, but, you know, already existing uh, massive effects of the ecological shifts that the climate, the climate change is precipitating. So there's, in my mind, there's no question that it, the fact that it's the poor that are paying the price is one of the reasons that the rest of us can just cruise. Well, let me just follow up on that real quick, Jeff, because uh, you both write how uh, you write in your book that uh, climate change is having a toll on everyone. So how right now, whether they realize it or not, are the rich and powerful already being affected? Well, I mean, I, I guess we could we could begin with, you know, things as straightforward and occasionally reported, if not in the frame of climate change always, you know, things like ongoing drought in the southwest uh, of the U.S. and uh, Mexico. Uh, we could point to, uh, you know, the, the shifting climate here in Canada and the Arctic uh, and obviously in the American part of the Arctic as well. We could point to, you know, very obvious ways in which uh, everyday folks in uh, Canada and the United States could run into the signs of a shifting climate. So so those things have, you know, both inconveniencing effects on our everyday lives, you know, a big storm in Toronto that ices up the roads or whatever. But they also have, you know, in the form of drought and wildfire uh, in California this past summer, uh, not just minor, but really, you know, catastrophic effects on, on the lives of people who might otherwise appear, appear kind of privileged to us. So, 
I think we're living in a dream world if we imagine those things are going to tone down and that that was just a bad year. So, uh, Joel, um, how impossible is it to stop using fossil fuels in order to mitigate climate change and not have an economic and a political upheaval? Does climate change make that revolution, if you will, inevitable? Well, there's there's a lot in that question, Chuck. Let me try and begin to answer it, and then maybe we can parse it out in, in, in a couple bites. Uh, let's start with mitigation. For some time, the goal has been to uh, reduce the amount of carbon we put in the atmosphere on something like the order of 80% or so by the year uh, 2050. I mean, that's, that's something uh, you can find in the IPCC reports or even in the aspirational statements that were made by the previous U.S. president. Well, to actually bring that about means one has to change how one powers the global economy. You'd simply have to move very quickly away from a carbon-based energy system. Well, so let's take, let's take a look at how we get our energy. If you, look, if you look at the data from the International Energy Association, the IEA, they show that in a, in, if you go back to around 1970 or so, when we started to have serious conversations about what green energy might look like, in those days, of course, we already had a sense of what tidal power and solar power and dams and so forth could do. Wind power has been around for a long time. So in those days, you, you had something like you know around 10 or 15 percent of the world's energy provided by so-called sustainable green energy of those types. Well, today, it's still more or less on the same order. But of course, there's been a huge push for more renewable energy, and there is more. It's simply that there's an awful lot more energy produced and consumed in the form of fossil fuels around the world. So mitigation means qualitatively changing that whole global energy system. And there's a couple big problems with that. One is that, relatively speaking, fossil fuels are incredibly cheap as sources of energy, in part because uh, we've, been doing it, we've been doing it for a long time. So there are huge corporations that have this massive institutional framework of, uh, of uh, global architecture for pulling the fuel out of the crust and burning it and delivering the electricity or the gasoline to your car. But on top of that, there's the whole political side of things, the, the, the political infrastructure, which includes massive subsidies for those same corporations as well as for the, the power system. So when we talk about mitigation, we're talking about confronting not just a technical and infrastructure-type system, but we're talking about confronting a political system, which is global. And underlying both of them, is the capitalist growth-oriented form of our society. So with that in mind, now we can turn to your question and say, okay, well, could we quickly decarbonize the global economy with, without changing the basic form of our society? I, I don't see how it's possible, and I've never seen anyone really produce a coherent explanation of how it could be done. This is where most liberal thinking about climate change really kind of goes out the window. You know, it, we, we start to talk about, well, if we, if we painted our roofs white and we you know, drove less and biked more and this, that, and the other thing, we could chip away here and that and, and so forth and so on. But there are a couple problems with that kind of thinking. One of them is how we manage to produce that coordination globally to get a lot more people doing a lot of that stuff. Another one is how we would prevent people who might free ride in that arrangement from taking advantage of the extra cheap energy that would be available in that scenario, how we would stop states from subsidizing fossil fuels even more if people started to demand less of them. And so on. So this is where we have to be considering serious political change. 
but exactly of what type. That's what our book is really trying to get at. It's not like there's one clear alternative. In fact, there are multiple different potential futures out there that involve addressing mitigation and adaptation. Uh, but unfortunately, we have to say that both in the world of academic political theory and also on the political left in the climate justice movement, we haven't really done a great job of being concrete and theoretically clear about what are the different possible uh, futures available to us. Well, let me, Joel, let me just follow up on that because I want to just ask you about one potential future, no matter, you know, this is something that might happen in any number of potential futures. You write, the vast proportion of historical greenhouse gases have been emitted as byproducts of the choices and activities, not of the masses of ordinary people, but rather of a wealthy minority of the world's people. So those who caused this are benefiting the most and did nothing and continue to do nothing about it as they're still not affected while the uh, poorest are, and they're still benefiting from this system. How, Joel, how inevitable is any kind of class reckoning, in your opinion? Uh, Well, first of all, I just want to make sure that we all remember, Chuck, that what you just said summarizes the the huge moral dilemma at the heart of climate change, which we can never uh, repeat enough, which is that we have a problem which is mainly affecting two enormous groups of people, the world's poor and the future people of the world, all of them, who have done almost nothing to cause the problem. And conversely, the people who have done the most to cause the problem are really, by and large, not going to feel the consequences of it. And that, that presents us with a huge moral dilemma, which unfortunately folds back into the ideological complications with really thinking clearly about climate change. As for the inevitability of conflict, uh, Chuck, I think I can speak for Jeff in saying, although we may be the kind of Marxists who think about long-term historical processes and capitalism and class conflict in ways that uh, try to uh, recognize the inevitability of conflict in a very general sense, we're not the sort of people who think that any particular future is inevitable in the sense that this must happen because that happened. That sort of thinking uh, tends to lead the left in all sorts of bad directions, either because we think we're guaranteed to win because history is on our side, or unfortunately we should just throw our hands up because there's nothing we can do. It doesn't matter. Neither one of those uh, outcomes is usually very helpful for either clear thinking or political organizing. So that doesn't mean, of course, that anything can happen. Uh, We think that there's a kind of middle style of thinking which is really important which is careful speculation based on clear premises, scientific type of reasoning, uh, and uh, historical uh, analysis of what's happened in the past. And uh, that's the style of thinking that we tried to inhabit when we were writing this book. And when we, when we occupy that style of thinking, uh, it, our hypothesis essentially is that there's a couple more or less likely outcomes in the future, and the most likely one is the one that we name climate leviathan. Now, when I get to the the title of the book, right, and that's where I wanted to go next, Uh, Jeff. I was just about to ask you that. Your book outlines the uh, potential political economic paths we anticipate unfolding in a rapidly warming world. You examine the path we regard as most likely, which you call climate leviathan, and sketch the outline of a radical alternative. How bad can it get, Jeff? How bad could the climate leviathan be? Because Climate Leviathan sounds real bad. What do you mean by climate Leviathan? Actually, it's that's a great question, Chuck. Uh, uh, I don't think it's. I think it's fair to say that neither Joel nor I uh, imagined that climate Leviathan sounded all that bad to its proponents. Um, 
in the sense that we were kind of, I mean, for those interested in the history of political thought, they'll know right away that we're riffing off of, you know, this book by Thomas Hobbes from the 17th century, which is called Leviathan. And in that book, Hobbes uh, famously makes an argument for what you might think of as a kind of absolute monarch. And he, he makes that argument because he says that the absolute monarch to which all people of the territory are subject is the one force that can sort of suppress what Keynes would have called civil dissension, you know, make civil war impossible. And in the the peace and stability that's produced, uh, people could live their lives pretty much like a a sort of proto-capitalist society. That's what uh, Hobbes imagined, a sort of bourgeois republic under the shell of this absolute monarch. And so when Joel and I are riffing on on that kind of thinking, we're proposing the emergent uh, order uh, that we think is most likely, given the climate crisis, is is a sort of global move toward a similar kind of power, and that that power, which is, uh, and we talk about it a lot in the book, is that the possibilities of that power are enormously complicated by the existing nation-state system and the geopolitical arrangements that are current. But nonetheless, we see uh, a sort of, in some cases, a, a global desire for uh, a power that can come to be that can that can mandate to each one of us how much we can emit, who can emit, where they can emit, and to kind of create a a stable and dependable and guaranteed, almost omnipotent carbon order that will therefore, hopefully, in in this dream world, uh, enable us to keep living the rest of our lives the way that we do now. And Joel, you also write that our point is not that global warming will simply cause everything to change or collapse. Instead, we argue that under pressure from climate change, the intensification of existing challenges to the extent uh, global order will push existing forms of sovereignty toward one we call planetary. So, Joel, what is meant by planetary sovereignty? Are you talking about the Amero? (laughs) I don't know what that is. Can you explain the reference, Chuck? Oh, that's this old thing the John Birch Society used to be super afraid of uh, NAFTA creating a single currency for all of North America. So what do you mean by uh, planetary sovereignty? I I, I recall. uh, No, thanks for reminding me, Chuck. No, it's not exactly the the, the bad version of the uh, right-wing dystopian fantasy of world government, but it isn't completely (laughs) unrelated either. By planetary sovereignty, Jeff and I are trying to say two things at once. On one hand, we're trying to describe a form of sovereignty which is now planetary in scale. So in that sense, it's breaking in in one sense with modern political theory uh, as it has been derived by Hobbes, in that we're finally somehow transcending a form of sovereignty that is specifically defined by a territory and its relationship with a given people. Not to say that sovereignty always works perfectly in the actual world, or that there's a coherent tie between territory and people, but that's a whole other discussion. But at least that's how it's imagined that it's supposed to work. And in the, in, in the future, we think that that could be relaxed, and that there could be form, a form of sovereignty which would be defined by being planetary, that is concerning the people of the world as a whole and their management. Which it brings to the second point, which is that under the, under the kind of modern compact, which is supposedly under writing, Uh, modern popular democracy, the sovereign, which is typically defined as the people as a whole, is uh, legitimates the rule, and the state or the sovereign is supposed to defend the people, defend the people, uh, for instance, through security and borders and all that kind of stuff. That's, again, that's the theory. 
I'm not saying that's actually how it works or that it's ideal or anything like that. But planetary sovereignty would define a scenario or could define a scenario where life on Earth, both including human life and the viability of the Earth as a planet, becomes something like an ideological or hegemonic substitute for the notion of the people and their territory. So both on abstract and metaphysical grounds and also in terms of political arrangements, we could have something like the evolution of the political as such. In other words, we could have a shift, something like we went through during the birth of the modern era when we had a similar shift in the political. Jeff. So now, so back to that was ahead. all pretty abstract. Yeah, yeah. So let me just add one little qualification. Is that something then that your ordinary bread and butter uh, right winger in the United <laughs> States would be afraid of? Most likely. Yeah. They would define that as world government or world state. Uh, but unfortunately, when, when we hear that kind of rhetoric on the right, it's not only quite vague, it's also quite unclear what they're proposing as an alternative. Within our schema, we speak of the desire to return to a kind of nativistic, religious or ethnic or racial order premised upon the secure defense of a particular in-group. We, we speak of that as behemoth, in part as a homage to the uh, classical opponent to Leviathan. And one of the arguments we make in the book is that the reason we haven't arrived at a world where we have a liberal climate Leviathan already is precisely because of the persistence of behemoths in different parts of the world, which are kind of holding back the emergence of this new form of political order. But uh, we don't, we don't, so we don't deny at all that there are counterpowers, so to speak, in the world. And that's why there's nothing inevitable about climate Leviathan. On the other hand, we don't think all the behemoths, as they exist now or they will in the future, uh, will have the capacity to produce a radically different order. At least that's not what we see as the most likely outcome. Jeff, uh, you write that a stable concept of the political can only hold in a relatively stable world environment. When the world is in upheaval, so too are the uh, definition and content of the realm of human life we call political. Political theory thus has a place in natural history and finds its meaning through critical reflection upon it. Whether we know it or not, all our thinking is environmental even when it rebels against nature. Now, last week, we spoke with Emily Apter, author of the book Unexceptional Politics and Obstruction, On Obstruction, Impasse, and the Impolitic. And Emily argues that everything is political, and it's a mistake politically to think anything isn't. Here you are saying everything is environmental. Is everything, Jeff, both political and environmental? And with climate change, are the two now inseparable? Uh I asked a question, um, and one that I'm somewhat wary of, of leaping into uh, in, in fear of saying something that I'll later regret. But I think <laughs> that it's fair to say that, uh, that uh, perhaps always, but certainly at this moment in time, uh, there can be nothing uh, environmental, as the term is conventionally used, that is not political uh, in our world. And I think what Joel and I were trying to say in this in the passage you just meant you just read from is that uh, it's also to say that our political thinking, in other words, our understanding of what counts as political, what what you know the realm of of what we think of as politics in contemporary life is is inevitably, uh, if not entirely environmental, it's inseparable from it, if that makes sense. They're not uh, you know, uh, the same thing necessarily, and I think, but I do think it's important to, to to try to frame what Joel and I are talking about, and when we say political, which may or may not be the same as what uh, Emily 
referred to. I think at the most superficial level, without in any way meaning that her argument is superficial, Joel and I would immediately agree, you know, that that everything is political. And if we think of things that are, you know, uh, conventionally assigned to the realm of you know private life or intimacy and, and tell ourselves those are political facets of life, we're being naive. And if that's part of what she's saying, then I think we would agree readily. But Joel and I are particularly interested in in the shifting grounds of what counts as uh, political life and political uh, engagement. And insofar as that has been for the last couple of hundred years, pretty heavily shaped by a notion of a people, you know, a distinct groups of peoples uh, coordinated territorially by something like what we might think of as the, the modern sovereign nation state. Uh, if those are part of the crucial frames that, that contain political life, then we anticipate uh, and actually would argue that that is already, um, you know, shifting. And insofar as it's shifting, it's really being forced to confront what we might think of as environmental factors, primarily climate change, especially. So climate leviathan becomes a kind of uh, emergent global order that we see as, uh, you know, a, a very distinct uh, trajectory, um, if not guaranteed, precisely for that reason, because climate change, climate change tests the nation state and our conventional understandings of the grounds of the political in ways that it has not been tested, perhaps ever. It, it demands a response that can't be contained at any scale other than the planetary, or at least it would seem to conventional thinking that that is the way we have to go. And so when we have, you know, these meetings in Paris and, and Copenhagen, we see people who understand themselves as progressive and left all over the world, desperately hoping for the coordination of a, of a binding agreement of a, of a, of a planetary power, because we, this is, this is the only way we can understand conventional political concepts to have any grasp uh, in a future world in which climate has shifted things so much. And that's the, the, the kind of thinking that we're trying to get at when we talk about, you know, how the political is shifting and how it ends up having a natural history insofar as it's caught up in our lives, which are also natural historical. And Joel, uh, you and Jeff both talk about in the book about how you hope for climate justice in the future. But unfortunately, what I often see in pursuits of justice here in the United States whether it's racial or gender-based justice, uh, we end up with inequality. So I'm more afraid of, uh, you know, climate inequality happen happening. But do we first, Joel, do we first need to address racial and gender-based justice before we can even grasp climate justice? Well, unfortunately, uh, history never gives us the opportunity of dealing with one issue first, and then later on we'll get to some other. We always have to take things on as they are presented to us by history, which is uh, connected and uh, complicated. And so we, whether we want to look at it as something positive or negative, in a sense, doesn't matter. The reality is that the world we actually live in is profoundly unjust in all kinds of ways, and it's on that terrain that we have to pull off an extraordinarily revolutionary political task, which is to somehow confront the emerging uh, planetary sovereignty while also confronting the capitalist organization of life on earth. So it's an exceptionally tall order. And we, in fact, it's so frankly difficult to imagine how that might work that uh, Jeff and I, although we spent a lot of time talking about it and thinking about it and, and reflecting on these issues as, 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 as people who are 
uh, very much part of the climate justice movement, uh, we felt like we could not really do justice to um, the, the clarity that we were searching for. And, and so the, the final section of the book, which is called Climate X, reflects our attempt to spell that out. Uh, so the readers can judge for themselves whether we were sufficiently clear. But I'd like to come back to the previous question for a second, Chuck, which I'm so glad you asked Jeff first, because it's really a tricky one. And I thought I, I agreed with everything Jeff said. I wanted to, to provide what might be a, a, a simpler way of, of, of trying to answer the question. Uh, again, not to disagree with Jeff, but to perhaps just to try and give your listeners a really um, perhaps dangerously simplistic way of understanding what we mean when we talk about the relationship between the political and natural history. So in round numbers, human beings as a species have been on this planet for about 300,000 years. And what we think of as the state, in, not, not the modern state, but the state as in, you know, like you might have found in the ancient Incan Empire or uh, in the ancient Egyptian world, has been around, again, speaking in, in round numbers, for around 10,000 years. So that means that, again, in rough numbers, around 290,000 years, the vast majority of time on Earth, uh, humans didn't have what we think of as a state. And then, of course, the modern state, which we, which we think of as the capitalist nation state, is even more recent and emerges in human history just in the blink of an eye, uh, just very recently. And all of what we think of as modern political theory associated with people like Hobbes or Machiavelli basically dates from that recent period of, say, the last two or three hundred years when the capitalist nation state uh, be becomes dominant. And so all of our lives today are structured by this phenomenon, the capitalist nation state, which, which forms this world, this capitalist modernity, which has a given set of political possibilities. Well, it's very hard for all of us to imagine that this could be otherwise. But when we look at things historically, it's ob also obvious that this is a very recent and highly contingent and by no means necessary relationship. And in, in a most general sense, I think what Jeff and I are trying to say is that capitalism, excuse me, climate change uh, presents us with a real crisis of the political imagination. Because to really seriously think about how we confront climate change exposes the limits of our political imagination. And that's why we, among other things, have to begin by realizing where we stand in terms of the longer durée of uh, political history in, in light of the Earth's natural history. But it's hard to do that without ending up in a position that we both clearly want to avoid, which is of implying in any way, shape, or form that this is all environmentally determined or we have no room for maneuver, etc. We, we clearly don't believe that. We always have political options. We always have more capacity to struggle than perhaps we knew. But that doesn't mean that we can do anything, of course. Well, Jeff, let's talk about one of those political options. One of those political options, unfortunately, is to react the way that the world reacted, especially the West, uh, to 9-11. And that is with a securitized response. We recently spoke to uh, sociologist Nisha Kapoor, and she talks about how that securitized response has led to a slow slide towards authoritarianism in the West. So what kind of political future could a securitized response to climate change usher in? Because that's what I'm fearing, that that will be our militarized, securitized response, as it is every time, Jeff. Mm -hmm. it's a, I, uh, there is an enormous part of me that wants to immediately agree with you, uh, insofar as uh, I think it's fair to say that both Joel and I uh, are, 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 are very concerned that that is, you know, the... the the most readily convenient and easiest trajectory to for, for the 
for the West at least to head on, and clearly uh, we're already on it in many ways. Um, and you know, people like Mike Davis have have, uh, uh, who's a great writer, who I'm sure you've probably spoken to in the past, or at least know. Uh, but he, he he has described a world very much like what you're describing. You know, uh, a way in which uh, the privileged manage to wall themselves off as much as possible from the effects of climate change, uh, and while the the rest of the world kind of, you know, burns effectively. And I, and I do think that's a real possibility. Um, but the, the, the mechanisms through which that will play out are rarely uh, really, we, we, we rarely take the time to really think about them hard and understand how stable or how effective they'll be. Um, I do think that anything like uh, what we might call political order can never rely entirely upon something like the terror that that kind of realm would, that kind of regime would require. I think there's much more significant uh, uh, questions to ask about how, even the, the terrifying trajectory that that describes and, and the institutional mechanisms and, and the political life, because that never goes away, that would inhabit that world would require a variety of shifts that are are maybe a little bit less uh, apocalyptic, but no less uh, terrifying at a political level. And Joel and I try to describe a couple of them uh, in the book, uh, which we call for convenience, climate Mao and climate behemoth, as, as, as Joel mentioned. And these are different trajectories that one might imagine emerging in the face of the pressures that would lead us toward the kinds of uh, futures you're talking about. And these are non-capitalist, perhaps in the case of climate Mao, uh, planetary rule, but there also could easily be a kind of, you know, what looks like a caricature of Donald Trump right now in the form of a kind of reactionary right wing, or, uh, you know, lift the, the, you know, build the wall, kind of keep the keep the refugees out sort of world that uh, that is right now readily imaginable. We just don't think that it's politically stable enough to hang around and that that's the reason why we imagine a climate leviathan being much more likely uh, trajectory in the future. Joel, you and Jeff write that although we do not agree with everything in Naomi Klein's book, This Changes Everything, we quibble with Klein's approach to capitalism and its history, we strongly endorse her utopian vision of a movement from Blockadia, uh, which uh, Naomi praises, one that overturns fossil fuels and or, overturns fossil fuels and capitalist political economy in the name of a new relationship to community and the environment a new utopian relationship to community and the environment. Now, I'm all for utopianism, Joel, but I got to do an interview. So <laughs> how vulnerable is the system to being challenged by utopianism? Isn't utopianism impractical? Well, by definition, yes. But then we could turn the the question around, because if, if what I said before is true, then nothing is more urgent than radical new forms of imagination today. Because to the extent that the left has a very hard time even explaining what it is we are concretely fighting for, we actually need to do a lot more uh, concrete uh, utopian thinking and practical activity. And so in that sense, uh, nothing could be more practical than, uh, than trying to uh, collectively work out what it is we are, we are fighting for. And here you could say, well, isn't that what the climate justice movement has been doing all along? to which, of course, Jeff and I would agree, but we would therefore offer our book as a further contribution to it because, uh, 
as as Jeff was implying, a lot of a lot of the a lot of the writing and 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 speech, speeches and thinking and so forth on the left, and I don't just mean the United States, has has often devolves very quickly into very frightening dystopian visions of the future, which, while not necessarily ungrounded in sensible thinking, doesn't necessarily inspire us to keep fighting for a better world, which is what we need so urgently. And on this note, let me just mention in passing that the book, so the book really starts almost 10 years ago when in the heady days in the run-up to Copenhagen, the COP meeting that was held the first time after President Obama had been elected, and there was all this really tremendous hope on, on the part of, like, left liberals around the world that, you know, capitalism was going to get its act together and the leaders were going to do the right thing. Uh, from that time, Jeff and I started having this conversation about what it was we were really fighting for, what it was we were really advocating for and imagining as a possible alternative, because we knew it wasn't a neoliberal capitalist utopian idea that, you know, the markets are going to solve this problem, because we know that's just not true. And so we felt a kind of internal dissonance that we wanted to straighten out for ourselves. And the more we fleshed out our critique of the direction that what, let's call it broadly speaking, the environmental movement was going in, and our own complicity in it, uh, we came to the conclusion that we had to develop a, uh, a more radical analysis of where we actually were. And in the course of doing so, uh, we, we presented this argument, which I think you, you, you put the Jeff in, in dystopian terms, describing a, a future that's far less democratic, more authoritarian, parliamentary democracy on the ropes, Leviathan reigning over all. And, you know, when we first started presenting these ideas to, ideas to people, I think we got the opposite reaction. Not that it was too utopian, but that it was too dystopian, too crazy. But now, of course, in the 10 years that have passed since we started talking about these ideas, the world has changed radically. And although neoliberalism still reigns supreme in terms of, you know, financial policy and the organization of capitalism, now the world is governed by leaders who, even 10 or 15 years ago, we would have thought of as extremely far right. And so what we're seeing, what we're living through, is in fact a tremendous global challenge to democracy, which is precisely what we've been trying to say is coming in, 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 in our writing. But at the same time, the point was, of course, not to make people upset and disappointed, but to provide a very clear analysis so that we could provide a, a better grounds for having a radical utopian vision of a better world. Jeff, just a couple more questions for each of you. Jeff, uh, you quote another past guest on our show. Mike Davis has been on our show several times. You quote another past guest on our show, Roy Scranton, author of Learning to Die in the Anthropocene. And he writes that learning to die as a civilization means letting go of this particular way of life and its ideas of identity, freedom, success, and progress. Now, we've been talking about how our uh, political and economic system have had an impact on leading to climate change. But how much are the ways, Jeff, how much are the ways we view identity, freedom, success, and progress to blame for climate change? Is it our views on and of identity, freedom, success, and progress that caused climate change? Hmm. That's an interesting question. I think that, uh, you, you know, as much as Joel and I admire the, the work of, of of someone like Roy Scranton, and and we definitely engage him. I think as a person who is thinking seriously about the questions that matter, I, I think we would uh, differentiate ourselves from the kind of account that you've just, you know, told us about from him. Um, this emphasis on on identity and these uh, sort of liberal uh, hyper values like freedom and things like this. I think partly we would begin by saying, well, those values. Uh, 
while certainly not at all unproblematic at, at the moment, are are not uh, it, uh, they didn't emerge and don't exist independent of the the capitalist liberal democracies that 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 we many of us live in today. And so those values are themselves uh, not so much independent ideas that. The rest of society is organized around, but they're actually sort of materially produced by by that world. And that means that as we struggle for a different world, we're not going to be necessarily stuck with these rigid concepts that are somehow dragging us down like a sea anchor. Um, our the political struggle will involve, you know, hopefully, uh, and I think it's almost inevitable, a, a really significant shift in our conceptions of what we value. So that part of the question can kind of be. Uh, I think, oversimplified by accounts like Scranton's without, again, in any way meaning any uh, disrespect. But I would follow that up by by also saying that, you know, effectively, uh, Roy Scranton uh, comes down on the side of a group of people who are, I think, increasingly vocal and increasingly influential, who understand climate change to be a kind of end game. And, and there's a lot of talk about, you know, we're blank, you know, we're effed. Uh, and I think, Joel, I really strongly want to resist that turn, even though we understand intellectually and emotionally how people get there. We yeah. don't think we don't think there's no hope. Uh, no. So we're very concerned to to focus, especially in the last chapter of the book, in this uh, account of Climate X, on on the people all over the world who, not at the scale of the state, are struggling incredibly productively in the worlds in which they live. Uh, and we need to not only, uh, of course, endorse and support those movements, but we have to cultivate the possibilities for those movements as, in as many places as we can. We see enormous hope in Indigenous struggle all over North America and South America and the rest of the world. We see enormous hope in local efforts to, to shift the way that everyday lives are led. We're not effed. Uh, we could be, but we are not. There's no guarantee. And, and uh, you know, we see a great deal more possibility out there than and perhaps uh, the title of the book communicates immediately. <laughs> uh, well, Joel, let's follow up on that and the difficulty of hope. Uh, you write that rapid climate change is sure to have dreadful and often deadly consequences, particularly for the relatively weak and the marginalized, both human and non-human. A political or ethical analysis is therefore of the utmost urgency. How difficult, Joel, is it to make something the moral duty of society to address? After all, we have poverty, homelessness, people dying because they can't afford health care. So how hard will it be to make people realize the ethical urgency of addressing climate change? How much, I guess what I'm really asking is, how much are we numb to the suffering of the world so we're going to let the world suffer again? Oh, that's a that's a tough question to answer. Let me try and answer it by appealing to a historical precedent. I mean, w you may recall that at the end of the movie that Al Gore made a number of years ago, uh, where he tried to appeal to the American conscience to get them to pay attention to climate change, he used the World War II metaphor, and he said, "We can do this. We can we can decarbonize our economy because look at how we pulled together during World War II when we needed to." And I thought. At the time when I saw the film, that was a really bad metaphor for a lot of reasons I won't get into now. The challenge we face is, unfortunately, a lot more complex and difficult than that faced by the United States during World War II. A better, a better historical parallel would be the long human struggle to eliminate slavery. Because from the vantage point of slave owners, giving up slavery is impossible to imagine. 
It's their basis of their livelihood and their power and their identity, as you were just discussing. Well, in a sense, for the wealthy of the Western world, uh, giving up fossil fuels and a form of society that has produced this incredible injustice of climate change is, a, is an order which is just as tall. Well, unfortunately, it took humanity a long time to confront slavery. And to, as we all know, in the United States, to eliminate it took the bloodiest war in our history. And we can question, we should question, to the extent which we were ever able to do justice to that history. Obviously, the struggle for racial equality and civil rights is very much with us today and absolutely part of the agenda that we're fighting for. So, unfortunately, what that suggests is that the order that we have here is extremely tall and, and it's a huge challenge. But again, we can't allow ourselves to be deluded into thinking that just because today someone comes out and says, oh, you know what, we passed this threshold, we now have 405 parts per million CO2 in the atmosphere, and the temperature in the Pacific has reached a threshold it's never been, and the world's greatest, most powerful typhoon just hit a country. So therefore, it's all over. That sort of thinking is what we oppose. Uh, there, it's quite possible that the future will have very serious climate change with a lot of dreadful effects. But if a left can become organized all over the world and change how we live, we could actually radically improve the lot of many, many people. But conversely, we could have the emergence of a planetary sovereign, which essentially amounts to, let's say, a collective management of life on Earth by some capitalist elites, principally from the United States and China and a number of other powerful countries in the future, where they mitigate some carbon and they allow for some very elaborate forms of adaptation. But in actual fact, life gets much worse for many people. So what this means is that while, as we were saying earlier, all politics today is environmental in some, some fundamental way, it's still politics and we still have to maintain that struggle somehow. And unfortunately for us today, that means that we have to really shake up our thinking. And our, I, I think Jeff and I just hope that our book is able to contribute to that discussion that's going on. I, I also hope that people consider that all, you know, everything that is political is environmental because here in Chicago, for instance, they're putting a new runway out at O'Hare Airport. And in all of the discussion, all of the writing I've seen about this, I haven't seen anybody bring up climate change whatsoever and the impact mm -hmm. that expanded air traffic is going to have on climate change. And so this is, should be seen as a very anti-environmental, a very uh, a, a climate change contributing legislation and project, but that's not how it's being seen at all here in Chicago. And I just think that people should be thinking more along of the political being environmental and the environmental being political. Uh, we have been speaking with Joel Wainwright and Jeff Mann. They are co-authors of Climate Leviathan, A Political Theory of Our Plan Planetary Future. Our last question, question for each and every one of our guests on our show we call the question from hell, the question we hate to ask, you might hate to answer, or our audience is going to hate your response. I'm going to start with you, Joel, because this is kind of a follow-up for you, and then I'll have a question from hell for you, Jeff. Uh, you you both write that, thus climate change poses direct and, wait, I'm reading the right, wrong part. The elite transnational social groups that dominate the world's capitalist nation states certainly desire to moderate and adapt to climate change, not least to stabilize the conditions that produce their privileges. And yet to date, They've failed to coordinate a response. So, Joel, can what you call elite transnational social groups maintain the power they have right now while fighting climate change? Or are the very things that cause climate change the source of their power? Uh, no, they can do it. 
They can do it, definitely, but probably not in exactly the form they're doing it today. And that's part of the reason the world's lunging towards what we call climate leviathan. But to really see that it's helpful to get outside of the U.S. frame and consider a place like China, where you know many of the world's most powerful capitalist actors, the elites you were describing, are leaders of the Chinese Communist Party, which, of course, for many of us is a strange irony, but it's a simple fact. And if we look at how the Chinese Communist Party has organized capitalism and climate adaptation in China, and we imagine scaling up that kind of undemocratic way of organizing politics to the world, then it's quite easy to imagine how they could pull off the the change that you're describing, Chuck. So uh, I don't know if you meant to say that the question itself, answering it was hell, or whether what I just described is hell, but let's just say that in either case, we have a lot more work to do to avoid the negative outcomes of those possibilities. All right, Jeff, my question from hell for you is, does climate change guarantee the socialist revolution that conservatives have argued is the real motive of climate change activists? Are we now definitely going to have the socialist revolution, all those socialists have been waiting for and all the conservatives have been fearing? No, (laughs) it does not. It does not guarantee it at all. I mean, of the various possibilities, that sounds like a pretty good one to me. Uh, but I would say that uh, at least at present, without the kind of political work that, that Joel has been describing and that you know people all over the world are actually engaged in, but without a lot more of that, something like the socialist revolution is highly unlikely. Um, the, the work, I, I, I mean, I don't think that Joel and I would simplify our, our hopes for Climate X in something as kind of uh, you know, black boxish as socialist revolution, uh, but the the hope that something like uh, a, a a really uh, radically collective, redistributional, secure and dignified politics for the people of the world uh, is the outcome of climate change. That that's the work that needs to be done. But right now, it is not at all likely. Um, and but that's not to, again to say it's impossible. In fact, it's it's. It's possible, and then maybe it's more possible now than ever. Who knows? I was banking on this being a communist plot, by the way, Jeff. So I really appreciate it. <laughs> Jeff well, and we Joel. Didn't get to that part, you didn't ask that part. Exactly. <laughs> Jeff and Joel, thank you so much for being on our show. Again, the name of the book is Climate Leviathan: A Political Theory of Our Planetary Future. Thanks so much for being on our show this week. Thank you, Chuck. It's great. Take care. Hi, it's this is Hell, and this is producer Alex, and you are listening to the Best of Capitalism Part Two a best of this is hell episode we are back next week with live shows happy new year when someone is imprisoned for trying to recycle electronic waste it's time for us as a society to rethink our relationship with the media that is increasingly dictating our idea of progress and what our future will be here to help us have some second thoughts about exactly where this relationship is and where it's heading maximilian alvarez is the Poverty of Theory columnist at The Baffler, where his most recent writing is entitled The Death of Media, The Planet Chokes on Electronic Waste, and a Recycler Goes to Prison. Welcome to This Is Hell, Maximilian. No problem, sir. Should I call you Max, Maximilian? What do you go by? 
<laughs> uh, we can save time and just go with Max. All right, thank you. I appreciate it. All those extra syllables will really slow this interview down. So uh, <laughs> you write about Eric Lundgren and the the great charge that was leveled against him ultimately amounts to criminal recycling. How is Eric Lundgren a criminal recycler? What is criminal recycling in the case of Eric Lundgren? Uh, well, um, in the case of Eric Lundgren specifically, um, you know, I'll, I'll go into that in a second, but hey, Chuck, thanks for having me on. I think a, a good rule of thumb for determining what criminal recycling is, is any form of recycling that's going to chip into the, you know, profit model of the big tech industry that operates on, um, kind of basic, uh, necessities of planned obsolescence and duping people into throwing out good equipment and buying new equipment that they don't need. Um, You know, Eric is a, you know, well-renowned e-recycler. He's been in the game for a while. He's still a young guy. Um, He made his name, you know, by building a a car out of recycled parts that ended up having a longer driving range than all these nice hybrid cars, including a Tesla uh, a couple of years ago. Um, so, you know, he's, he's, he's seen a lot of, you know, the impact that e-waste has on, uh, on our world and, you know, is engaged in a number of endeavors to try to curtail the destruction that, you know, our e-waste production is wrecking on, on the world. And unfortunately, one of those endeavors, uh, you know, ended up kind of being his undoing and it probably wasn't the one that he expected. Um, but. To give a a bit of a snapshot, you know, in 2012, customs agents in in Florida seized a shipment um, with Eric's name on it that had 28,000 restored disks. And I'll explain what a restored disk is in a minute. Um, And uh, customs agents presumed that these were counterfeit copies of Windows um, for Dell computers. So they got on the horn. They called Dell. Um, Dell didn't really seem to care but then microsoft got wind of the whole thing and that's when everything blew up um so the department of homeland security um believe set up a sting operation and had a third party offer eric lundgren you know um like about three grand for a shipment of twenty eight thousand restored discs which works out to about 80 80 cents per disc um so eric was hired to you know um deliver these discs, um, ship, had them produced in China, shipped over, um, and then sold them to a third party. And as soon as the sale was complete, then the sting was complete. Then this whole nightmarish scenario started spinning out of control. Um, so with Microsoft's help, U.S. prosecutors um, ended up putting Eric Lundgren in prison for 15 months, um, exacting a $50,000 uh, fine against him for essentially what they claim was, you know, stealing uh, up to upwards of $8 million worth of sales from Microsoft. And this is where it really gets hairy because the technical details really matter here um, because Eric was producing and selling at a low cost these restored disks. What Microsoft and um U.S. prosecutors argued was that he was counterfeiting and selling fully licensed operating systems, which is just not the case. Um, The big difference is that one of these things is worth next to nothing, 
The other thing is worth a whole lot. Um, and unfortunately, because of the technical illiteracy of our you know, judicial system um, and because of various missteps on, from Eric's attorneys and, and various disingenuous maneuvers by um, U.S. prosecutors and Microsoft um, technicians, you know, this all just kind of turns into a horrifying Kafka scenario in which Eric Stallion finds himself in prison for essentially a crime he did not commit. You write that as Microsoft has repeatedly noted, it was the United States Attorney's Office in Miami that filed charges against Lundgren after custom agents intercepted a shipment at the center of everything, a shipment of 28,000 disks containing computer wiping software that you can legally download for free. If it was free online, then who needs these disks? Why aren't these users just immediately aware that, oh, well, if I need to fix this computer so I don't have to go throw it into a ditch somewhere, uh, why, can't, why didn't they just simply know that they could download this for free online? Why was there a need for these disks? Well, um, that's the question of the day, right, is that, um, you know, Microsoft makes the, the, the disk images of the restored disks freely available online. Um, and so I guess I guess to answer that question, I'll take a, a step back and try to explain what a restored disk is really quick. Um, so when you buy a computer, and, and also keep in mind that, you know, we're still, we're talking about 2011, 2012 type era. Um, so like now, these restored disks would kind of be obsolete because people can just put it on a USB stick and that's probably the way they would go. Um, but in 2010, 11, and 12, Eric noticed that, you know, people didn't have a, a, a kind of general knowledge of how easy it was to just download and burn a restore disk if they lost the one that comes with the new computer that they buy. Um, so when you go and buy a new computer um, and you pay for it, a big chunk of that cost is actually going towards a license for the operating system software on it, um, like Windows. When you open up the, the, the box of your new computer, you'll typically find a restored disk that will allow you to reinstall the OS if you get a virus or if your computer is just running like crap. Now, this whole reinstallation process only works if you register your OS with a verified license key, which you know listeners will recognize as that sticker attached to their computer or the certificate of authenticity is often called. Um, so you can, like I said, you can download the disk images for free um, to burn your own restore disk if you lose the one that comes with your new computer. Um, the problem, though, is that Microsoft does not sell these disks. Um, you know, you, you, you can find a way, like I said, to get, get a hold of the link, download it, burn it yourself, but they're not readily available. Um, so they're kept just closely, uh, just out of sight enough for, you know, lay users to not really know that it's an option. Um, and to, you know, what, 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 what Lundgren did was have thousands of these restored disks printed in China and shipped over to the U.S. so that repair shops could sell them for cheap to anyone who couldn't make their own or didn't know how to. Um, and, and to be clear here, you know, uh, Eric did commit a crime and he pled guilty to it right out of the gate. Um, if you if you look at you know the the coverage of this, you'll find that um, you know it's pretty it's pretty clear to determine that the crime he committed was counterfeiting the packaging to make the discs that he produced look exactly like Dell branded ones. Um, so he he you know illegally used you know Dell packaging, copyrighted packaging, 
Um, and you know, even even though the 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 intention of this was to kind of assure users who buy these restored discs at a refurbisher didn't have to worry that they were putting some sort of counterfeit malware, you know, like on their computer, you know, it was still a crime. Um, and, and, you know, it was an unnecessary one, but it was, it was the one that ended up getting Eric tangled in this web. But like I said before, the, the, the really um, Kafka-esque turn here was that, um, you know, the, the government prosecution turned this into uh, a, a, criminal case in which Eric was being accused of counterfeiting fully licensed operating system, um, which, are, which are worth, which is just the, the cost of, you know, an entirely new licensed Microsoft package. And that is absolutely not what he was producing. Um, Eric was not producing licenses. He, you, you, he did had no intention whatsoever of counterfeiting licenses. He was just producing restore disks so that if people had viruses on their computer, they could just pop it in wipe their computer, and then after that step, they would have to go back to their original licensing key and re-register their OS, and that was not something that Eric provided, but it was what the prosecution convinced the judge that Eric um, had produced. You're right. No matter how you slice it, Eric, Eric Lundgren is in prison for crimes he did not commit, even though, as you said, he admitted to the other crime. Was the other crime of the copyright infringement did that come with a far less penalty than the crime that he was found guilty of? Oh yeah, very much so. Um, you know, it's 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 been tough, uh, but I but I suppose revealing to talk to you know people after writing this piece because I've gotten been very happy to see you know a lot of sympathetic people who hadn't heard about this case. You know, people who want to know how they can write to Eric in prison or what they can do to advocate for him how they can get involved in, you know, rights repair and stuff like that. But I've also seen a lot of people who, you know, in, especially in the political moment that we're in, have a, a, an obscenely dangerous and blasé way of thinking about, you know, like the distinctions of crime levels, right? Where people are like, well, he, he did break the law. So, you know, I guess that justifies, you know, like whatever sentence was passed down. And, and you know, anyone familiar with the case would be like, no, that's like saying that, you know, um, a kid who like steals a pack of gum uh, suddenly, you know, like is being charged for like, you know, grand theft. Right. And and they're not the same at all. I mean, this should have been just a, a um, you know, like a, a civil case between two parties that carried like a, a fine and Eric would have been happy to pay that. Um, but instead it became, you know, like a government uh, mediated criminal case that carried, you know, just a far greater sentence than anything Eric, I think, could have imagined at the beginning of this. And I want to get to the larger cultural a aspects of that. So you write that uh, it's because our, just, our justice system, the reason that he has been found guilty of crimes he did not commit, commit, is because our justice system, by being so resolutely blind to or worse complicit in the fundamental business model of the tech industry sprawling corporate oligopoly, defers to the entities that control the industry itself, just like the rest of us do. We are entrusting our ignorance to those who profit directly from it. What explains why we do that or why a judge would defer to industry and not avoid deferring uh, to either side? Do we, are we all kind of complicit in this finding of Eric Lundgren guilty and that we all kind of, their, their culture or society right now, defers to whatever big tech tells us? 
I think, I mean, I, I think we are to an extent, but this is also where, um, you know, we open on to the, the larger issue that is being held up by the right to repair movement, right? Is that, you know, we are complicit in this. And, you know, over the past year with all the hype about Russian hacking and Cambridge Analytica and stuff like that, people have become, you know, gradually more conscious, self-conscious, or at least, you know, like felt a slightly more guilty about um, how little attention we actually pay to like the user agreements that we like okay on, you know, or the, the um, kind of directions we get when we buy new equipment and stuff like that. Um, but what um, Eric's case and what, you know, the right to repair movement um, and really show is that our complicity aside, the, the much larger problem here is that, you know, big tech, along with, you know, the government acting as essentially like, you know, its, it's enforcement arm has monopolized so many aspects of the tech market that anyone who tries to, you know, kind of intervene in that, anyone who tries to, uh, you know, provide consumers with better options, right, has the, has the book thrown at them. Um, and, you know, I think in, in researching this, I think one of the most horrifying things for me was when I um, was when I saw the totally seamless way the U.S. government operated as, as I said, an enforcement arm of the tech industry. So the DOJ, DHS, uh, Customs Control, it's all uh, it's almost as if like corporations are their clients. Um, it's almost as if like, you know, the Department of Homeland Security is a de facto corporate agent of companies like Apple, which. Uh, you know, to be fair, I guess they basically are. You know, if if people want to go deeper into this and and even look past Lundgren's case, you know, I point them to um, a story in 2013 where you can actually see footage of ICE raiding dozens of smartphone repair shops in South Florida, and they're actually accompanied by Apple representatives, and they're seizing you know hundreds of thousands of dollars in so-called uh, counterfeit parts. Um, and, you know, if you look at the local news segment, the weirdest thing is that um, at the end of it, they, they essentially become, you know, a mouthpiece for Apple and direct people to, you know, quote, authorized service providers and away from these mom and pop repair shops that are essentially providing a service that in this country has been, you know, taken for granted for our other forms of technology like cars, right? Like if you had a car in the past and something broke and you didn't want to take it to the dealer, you go to a junkyard. Right, you get like you know a replacement part. You put it in there. It costs about like a third of what it would if you bought a new part, and you know you go on with your life. But in you know the age of new media, there are actually so many restrictions that we don't know about that if you you know take it to a mom and pop, take your say like your phone, your busted phone with a busted screen. You take that to a mom and pop repair shop because it's like a third of the price of what it would be if you took it to the Apple store. Right, Apple actually has a lot of sinister stuff built into its software and user agreements that can punish you for doing that, punish you for, for trying to, you know, exercise what have traditionally been your rights as a consumer to repair your own stuff. Right. Um, and, uh, you know, going back to the, um, the ice raid, you know, busting into to these Florida um, repair shops, right. The, the, I think what, what, you know, people need to realize is that we're essentially living in a, you know, kind of dystopian world already where federal agents can bust down your door with corporate reps. And instead of, you know, reading you your Miranda rights, they'll essentially read you your software user agreement, explain to you the ways that you, know, you are, you are in violation of that. Um, 
And it's always masked in the language of user safety and, you know, um, you know, if you use spare parts or parts in what's called the, the aftermarket, right? A lot of this, uh, a lot of these parts are coming from China because, you know, if you want to replace parts on your, on your iPhone or something like that, Apple doesn't sell those parts to you. They only sell them to, you know, refurbishers who have like enrolled in a certain program that involves them paying a lot of money to Apple. Um, and a lot of the other parts and, and, um, repair equipment are actually only made available to Apple employees themselves. Um, so they have established a monopoly on repairing your phone, um, repairing your computer and stuff like that. Um, and I think now people are, are with cases like Eric, um, and cases like, uh, you know, Jessa Jones, um, people are only starting to kind of realize, in fact, how little ownership they actually have over the devices in their pocket. You write how there is the real end game of tech giants like Microsoft, Apple, Google, HP, and Facebook. Theirs is a mission to maintain and expand their monopolized role as dictators of the meaning of progress, insinuating their technologies into more and more spheres of daily life, sucking more and more of the world into the position of playing catch-up. What's wrong with the meaning of progress being dictated by technology? After all, hasn't technology always dictated what progress means, even since the cotton gin isn't Microsoft or Google or Facebook doing the same thing that corporations like AT&T or, or, AT or Ford or the McCormick Reaper did before them? Uh, yes and no, right? I mean, um, the, the, the history of media technologies is a really fascinating one. I would point people to an emerging um, subfield called media archaeology, which is essentially a, a, a field um, that is based on going into the past and looking at the failed media or the media that were outcompeted, you know, like in their time. And to try to understand, you know, like the, the, the technical operations of those um, technologies themselves. But, you know, like looking at it, you know, in the way that we do with, like, say, evolution, right? You can see a very complex history there of how in each, you know, historical period, certain technologies end up kind of winning out over others. Not just because they're not because they're better a lot of the times, but a lot of times because of, you know, just a historical accident or because of, you know, other um, interceding factors like political power, economic power and, and so on and so forth. So I think that the, the question you articulated is one that that, I, that is fresh in our heads all the time when we think of big tech, when we think of Silicon Valley. Right. It's it's, it's almost as if, like, you know, the question of progress and the tech question of like technical um sophistication go hand in hand right we assume they're both pointing in the same direction right but but what cases like Erickson, jesse jones and and the right to repair movement show is that in fact you know like this progress is not being dictated just by um you know what's better for us as consumers or what makes our um technologies quote unquote better because what does better really mean in that sense Right. I mean, like, how can we look at the kind of tech economy that we have now where we're throwing out, you know, this supposedly like the most sophisticated technology that the world has ever seen? We use it for like two years and then chuck it out. Right. You know, like how how, how can that itself, you know, like be a sign of like how uh, 
good and and right you know like the technology that we have today is and that this is the only way it could be right instead we have to start asking how the the monopoly these corporations have and how the state acts as its you know enforcement arm conspire how these forces conspire to essentially give over the meaning of progress to corporations who you know let's be honest just have at their base you know like a a, a goal of making profit right it's in, it's always cloaked in in the language of you know making a better world or um making life you know like easier and 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 so many other functions uh more seamless to to perform Right, but but you know if we look at the damage that you know the e-waste that we're producing because we are engaging in an economy of throw of throwaway culture you know and poisoning you know the earth like that that kind of throws a wrench into the gears of of thinking of this as like you know the the, the seamless and necessary way of technical progress to go and you know um i think i think one of the things um to realize too is that you know there, there there's there's a lot of knowing that the profit motive is there right and keeping that up front and center right you start to kind of see the the shady aspects to the tech culture that we're all you know a part of right you know electronics today and cars and then you know everything else are becoming more complex and in that process they are becoming harder to fix right more and more products have computerized functionality built into them um and i was i was when i was researching this piece i was looking up at like you know these these smart products that you know just seem so unnecessary and dumb right so like you know there are smart fridges now uh essentially like a fridge with a tablet slapped onto it there are smart water bottles that tell you when your water is low um there's a smart hairbrush with a computer built into it, there are smart egg trays that tell you how long your eggs have been in there. Uh, there's a Brita filter with a Wi-Fi connection that'll automatically order new filters for you. Um, there's smart flip-flops. There's there's smart luggage. One company is even developing a smart condom uh, that measures thrust velocity and tells you supposedly tells you if you have STIs. And so we're putting, you know, like this, this is what we mean when we say like, you know, oh, things are getting better, right? Big tech is making things smarter. And if you, and, and anything can be smarter if you just slap the name smart, you know, like in front of it, right? But if you like take a step back and look at like who really needs this computer in an egg tray and what is it actually accomplishing, right? Um, this is what the right to repair legislation, you know, like um, is really kind of putting front and center. It is that um, what is really happening is in fact, um, you know, big tech is putting its tentacles into more and more spaces of everyday life where we didn't need computerized functionality before, but now we do. And it has, you know, these little bells and whistles on it. But essentially what it does is it makes these products way more expensive and much harder to fix, right? So you're going to, the, the end result isn't efficiency. It isn't, you know, um, a better user experience. It's, you know, more money being spent for the stuff that you've been doing all this time. I'm going to stick with traditionally dumb condoms. I really think that they work just fine. <laughs> yeah, give me a dumb condom any day. <laughs> uh, you write, uh, the media holding together the kind of world we've built for the present have acclimated us to a kind of life that is marked for death. 
How has media acclimated us to a kind of life that is marked for death? Well, let's see. I mean, like, so there's a there's a big way of looking at that and then, you know, a small way. So I'll try to um, connect the two, um, sticking with with what we've been talking about so far, because um, like, the point I wanted to actually make before, um, you know, goes to this question of, of ownership and right. And to understand kind of like how we our media shape who we are. Right. You know, we need to kind of like take a close look at how everything that we've been talking about so far in this segment you know, hinges on, you know, questions of ownership that and the ways that we think that ownership is being defined and the ways that actually companies and the technologies that we use are defining ownership for us, right? So no one knows better than big tech that we are constantly misapplying 20th century notions of property ownership to 21st century realities of licensed use, right? Um, you know, what good is owning something if you can't actually use it, right? You can, you can own a new Dell computer um, or a fancy iPhone, but if you can't use the OS, then you've basically got an expensive paperweight. You know, you can, you can own a state-of-the-art John Deere tractor. Um, and, and in fact, a lot of the right to repair movement is actually hinged on, um, you know, John Deere tractors and farmers in like Nebraska and Vermont. Um, but if you, if you own this big, nice tractor, um, but you're locked out of the computer that makes it work and that allows you to diagnose and fix problems. You basically got, you know, an artificial multi-ton source of shade. And if people want to, like, take a look at this, you know, Vice's motherboard had a really good segment on there where they show how farmers who have these combines that they've used for, you know, decades. And then these, you know, like new fancy John Deere tractors with computerized functionality and sensors all over the thing. They're like, if this, the second one breaks down. I have to like put it on, um, you know, a flatbed. I have to take it sometimes a hundred miles away. And, you know, like I lose time, I lose crops, I lose money. Right. Um, but they point to like their old ones and they're like, I could still use that one. <laughs> right. Um, so like I said, the, the companies who make these products, they know what's going on, but we're only now just starting to catch up. We're only now just starting to see kind of the, the ways that in fact we already operate you know, unconsciously by using, you know, the technologies that big tech is putting out. And if you want to put a, a hilarious and depressing example on it, you can actually look up, you know, a document John Deere filed with the Copyright Office in 2014, where they say point blank that a farmer who owns a $500,000 combine may own the physical machine. But they only have, um, I think they call it a, quote, an, an implied user license to the software. And the software has a lock on the operation. And, um, so in effect, they own the tractor. You just get to drive it and pay for the upkeep. Um, and, you know, there's, there's, there's something called uh, Doctorow's Law, which comes from the Canadian um, blogger and science fiction writer, um, Cory Corey Doctorow. Uh, and he says, um, I remember it. Uh, he says, like, anytime someone puts a lock on something you own against your wishes and doesn't give you the key, they're not doing it for your benefit. And that's pretty much where we are now. Right? If you if you own something that someone else has put a lock on and they have the key, you don't own it. Right. They do. Right. And so that's that's, you know, one of the, the, the ways that um, right to repair has been trying to show people that, in fact, the, the we, we keep 
operating on this kind of outdated notion that we are kind of just purchasing new technologies to enhance the ways that we live. But in fact, the technologies that we purchase are adjusting the ways that we live and, and in fact, um, roping us further into um, a system that is not built necessarily for our benefit, but is built first and foremost to make profit for, you know, the companies that are producing the things that we buy. Right. Um, and, you know, to, to again, um, kind of put a, to, to zoom out here, right. You know, when, cause when I talk about um, the media and, you know, how media impacts the ways that we think and act, right. I get a bit theoretical in the second half um, of the piece, but I think, you know, I try to, I try to pinpoint how, in fact, we think of mediation and media, right, in, in, in pretty complex terms on a daily basis, but it's also very limited, a very limited way of, of understanding what media are, right? Um, and the main thing, I think, is, is that we need to understand um, that, you know, our, our way of thinking about media uses a core set of, kind of hubristic assumptions about who we are and how we live in the world, All right? So, you know, we understand that media are a middle way between fully formed things that are already are what they are. You know, um, you and I are communicating through media right now, right? The phone in my hand, uh, the phone in your hand, the signals and satellites that make that possible. It's all taken to be a, a you know, transportation mechanism between two independently defined people who are, you know, passing along fully formed thoughts that popped out of our heads and have been translated into language so we can communicate them to each other. You know, everything is, is in this picture is well-defined and plays its role in the process. But if we take a step towards thinking of media and mediation in a more, you know, elemental way, the way I describe the piece, you know, we can start to ask questions about how you and I on either end of this phone, right, are shaping each other by interacting with each other. We can start to ask um, how we and our thoughts are being tweaked and adjusted by the instruments that we're using to become the kind of beings who are adapted to, you know, these specific tools. And if we take another step towards thinking of media and mediation um, in a more elemental way. We can start to ask questions about how we are actively participating in an oppressive economy that has incentivized people to build businesses around pulling, uh, you know, the, the materials needed to make these phones out of the ground and to build a business model based on um, building products that are going to fall apart in a few years and end up back in the landfill and poisoning the land and earth and water and people, right? So again, if we take a step back, we can start to ask about the ways that these things we buy and these practices we adapt ourselves to are perpetuating a, a cycle in which we are acting upon our ecosystem in a way that will make this planet unlivable for us. You know, basically, we start to thinking about media this way, we start to get a better sense of how things and people and environments interact with each other and shape each other through processes of mediation. Right, we start to, to see ourselves as people, um, as people in the making, right? and we start to appreciate the delicate and, and not-so-delicate ways we shape the world that in turn shapes us. Right? It's this constant kind of back and forth that I try to draw our attention to. 
And, and in the end, you know, the kind of life that we have adjusted ourselves to, right, by using technologies whose, whose functionality, by not only using technologies, but also engaging in cultural practices, right, participating uh, and, and propping up certain institutions and ways of doing things, like all these things mediate a certain way of living, right, a certain throwaway culture that produces more than it needs and poisons the earth, you know, like, uh, and in such drastic ways, like e-waste that we mentioned earlier, like is the, is the largest growing, you know, trash stream in the world right now, right? You know, the, we're, we're, we're producing, you know, millions and millions of metric tons a year of this stuff. Right? And, and, and it's, and it, it really, again, you can zoom out and kind of see the, the larger effect that that's having, but it's harder to kind just like the way that we don't understand, um, kind of how the media that we use are in fact training us to become accustomed to a world in which we don't actually own the things that are in our pockets, but we're just like kind of paying for a license to use them. Um, all these like little things that adjust how we live are also adjusting us to a way of life that is just fundamentally unsustainable. Right. And so, you know, we, we, we focus a lot on, you know, the, the, the big actions that need to be taken um, to, to stem the flow of e-waste and, and to, you know, um, try to, to repair the ecosystem to, to a degree or at least mitigate the damage that we're doing to it now, right? But, but, you know, I think the hardest thing, you know, there is to really kind of bring to consciousness and, and shape, you know, like people's everyday way of doing things and everyday dependence in tiny ways on these much larger systems and processes that are essentially killing us, right? And, and, and thinking of media this way, is, I think, is, is really important and, and kind of taking what we know about media already and then trying to apply that to, you know, all, all these other minute and, and large facets of our lives and the ways that we participate in society and, and the world. We have been speaking with Maximilian Alvarez. He is the Poverty of Theory columnist at The Baffler, where his most recent writing is entitled The Death of Media, The Planet Chokes on Electronic Waste, and a Recycler Goes to Prison. Maximilian is on the National Steering Committee of the Campus Anti-Fascist Network and co-founded the local chapter in Ann Arbor, Michigan. Maximilian is unapologetically socialist and obsessed with his cats. Find out more about Maximilian at activeforgetting.com and follow him on Twitter at Maximilian underscore ALV. As we do with all of our guests, our final question is the question from hell. The question we hate to ask, you might hate to answer. Our audience is going to hate your response. Your article even goes into Trump's relationship with the media, President Donald Trump's relationship with the media and the way that he vilifies it. You write that Trump encourages us to be infinitely suspicious of all the ways mediating forces distort the truth as it makes its journey from him to us. Unless, of course, those mediating forces produce a positive image of him. If Trump is making us increasingly suspicious of the mediating forces in our lives, then what explains why Fox News viewers aren't increasingly suspicious of Fox News? How can someone say they don't trust the media? And when asked, they explain... They don't trust the media because Fox News told them not to trust the media. <laughs> yeah, I mean, like, um, I have a, I have a line like um, right around there where I say like, yeah, the fact that that you can watch tons of clips of Sean Hannity, right, who's just like the the living embodiment of like corrupt, ideologically warped corporate media, 
right? That you can watch him like sit there and slap his belt on the table and rail against the media, right? It's just like, well, well, like if if you're not media, then what the hell is? (laughs) So um, I think that that this is why the question of mediation needs to be broken out of these limited ways uh, of understanding, right? You know, it's not just media in the sense of communications technologies that can, you know, alter the you know message between Trump and us, right? It's all the ways that, in fact, we are um, kind of trained and, and, and train ourselves to live in a world in which these things make sense. Right, in which Fox can be not the media and everything else can be. Right? I mean, like, you know, questions of, of ideology um, <clears throat> and, and, and just kind of, you know, uh, unquestioning belief aside, right? What I, what I try to point out <clears throat> is that, you know, this is a question not just of our attachment to, like, the news media that we, you know, uh, watch or read every day. Right. It's, in fact, a much more elemental question of like kind of how we are um, able to live a certain way and able to relate to, you know, the, the technologies that we use, the people that we interact with, the, the culture that we participate in. Right. All the ways that these things, in fact, mediate a certain way of living that feels comfortable, that makes sense and that, you know, allows us to process what's kind of being put in front of our eyes and fitted to that kind of way of life, right? Um, and, and, you know, whether it's Fox News or whether it's MSNBC, right? You know, it's not just the kind of the, the images and the voice that are kind of being played to you on a screen, right? It's, it's in fact, you know, like a much larger question of the kind of people that you associate with, the kind of living that you do, the kind of... Um, practices that you participate in and and kind of how all this works in a sort of ecological way, right, to adjust you to a kind of life in which it makes perfect sense that, you know, Fox News is not the media, but everything else is. Um, and, you know, um, I know it's, it's not. I, and this is why I think um, people so um, people should should really be focused on the question of right to repair, because if nothing else, Right, the right to repair movement, and I and I say this in the piece, the right to repair movement is is trying to draw our attention to those kinds of unconscious or subconscious ways that we participate in the world and that mediate, you know, like a certain way of living for us that often we just take for granted and don't think about, you know, on a conscious level. Right. The right to repair is forcing us to kind of ask how we relate to the phone in our pocket and the company that produces it. Right. And, and the, the, the ecosystem that that production, you know, is a part of and how we're impacting it. Right. The right to repair forces us to think, you know, like more up front, because normally we just don't, you know, we don't give a passing thought to this on a daily basis. But it forces us to think, um, you know, kind of about the, the, the question of ownership and the question of repair and why that is necessary and how repairing our own equipment, you know, and having the, the legal means to do so you know, it has, you know, a larger impact on, you know, the world that we're participating in. Right? And, and, I, and I know you're, you know, broadcasting out of Chicago right now. And, and in Illinois, there is a Digital Fair Repair Act. Uh, I think it's House Bill 4747 uh, that just made it out of committee. Um, and this is a bill that would guarantee consumers and small businesses 
access to all the parts, diagnostic tools, and uh, and schematics that they'd need to repair kind of consumer electronics. And the, and the hilarious you know part about this is that just days before the Digital Fair Repair Act kind of made it out of committee, Apple had another debacle that only further proved why these bills are so necessary, right? Why the the fight for the right to repair is so important. Um, so Apple released an iPhone software update, which is, um, you know, standard practice. But owners of the iPhone 8, who had previously had them repaired with uh, what are called aftermarket screens, uh, you know, at a, at a third-party repair shop, woke up to discover that uh, with the new software upgrade, their phones no longer uh, worked. They, they no longer had touchscreen functionality. So, you know, their repair screens had worked just fine before that. But now a software update basically made those phones unusable unless they had, you know, an official Apple screen with, a, with an Apple chip in it. And this is, this is not the first time that this kind of thing has happened. They did the same thing in 2017. You know, Apple has routinely demonstrated that it can and will use software updates to kill crucial functionalities and thus, you know, punish people who, for, you know, whatever reason, for cost, you know, like for convenience, get their equipment repaired at a mom and pop refrigerator or, you know, do it themselves. And, and I mean, the message is, is, is crystal clear here. And if you take your busted equipment to a third party, like I said, if you, if you exercise what have been your traditional rights as a consumer to shop around and find the best deal to repair the equipment that you ostensibly own, right, Apple will make you pay for it. Um, and, and in some countries, you know, um, consumers are, are fighting back. Right? In Australia, you had what was known as the, the Era 53 debacle, where, where this kind of thing happened. People woke up to their iPhones that had a software update, um, and people who would have those iPhones repaired by a third party suddenly couldn't use them. Um, and, you know, Apple also lost a case in Norway where they tried to, you know, sue a, a repair, a refurbisher for, for, you know, using aftermarket iPhone parts. And like I said, he actually lost. Um, and so, again, the, 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 the really important thing there is that, you know, these cases bring to light how, you know, little ownership and how little control, in fact, we have over the, 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 the technologies that we use and over the relationships we build by using those technologies, right? We focus primarily on the interface because the interface is something that still, like I said, with, with the question of media and mediation, it puts us and ourselves and our content front and center. And in the background, in places we can't see, right, there's a whole black boxed world of algorithms and hardware and software and laws and, um, you know, ecological factors of, you know, like where we get the materials to build these and the political factors of, you know, what countries we're pulling these uh, materials out of, right? There, this is the whole kind of, like I said, black box world that underwrites the reality that we participate in and underwrites the kind of outdated notions of, of use and ownership that we're still applying, you know, in the 21st century. And, and in fact, that we have way less control over than we think we do, right? You know, because again, you get a, you get a software update and suddenly you lose so much of what you thought, you know, like was your property. Right? And, and, and as of right now, there, there are very little legal recourse to do anything about it. And I think it's really important for people to focus on things like right to repair and, and to start to kind of prepare our understanding of 
um, a holistic understanding of how we interact with the world through media and how media shape us, you know, in the process. So if people want to know more about that, I would point them to, you know, repair.org, um, programs that, and companies like iFixit, who have been doing great work. Um, you know, I just talked to Nathan Proctor, uh, who is the director of U.S. PIRG's campaign for Right to Repair, and that's uh, U.S.P.I.R.G., uh, and you can visit them at standupforrepair.org. Um, so, so learn more about this movement. Get involved. You know, like because as of right now, whenever these le- this legislation comes up, right? You know, when when in Nebraska, you know, a, a legislation was was put forward to kind of break the monopoly that John Deere had on the means for repairing the equipment that farmers owned. Right. The, the Nebraska was kind of overrun with representatives from Apple, Microsoft, you know, like in these big tech firms who, who killed it, essentially, mm-hmm. right? because they do not want us to have, you know, the means to repair the stuff that we own. They don't want us knowing that, in fact, we don't own these things and that they do and that they have, you know, a monopolized control over these things that, that, that have such a huge impact in our lives. And we're not going to, you know, break this kind of vicious death spiral until we start to kind of break out of this hubristic notion of, you know, a fully formed self-conscious user interacting with, you know, fully formed uh, operation systems that they have control over. And we have to see ourselves in much more, you know, elemental and, and interactive and, and um, you know, delicate ways Um to understand, in fact, how we're going to change ourselves and change the kind of world that we live in to make it actually sustainable and viable for us. We've been speaking with Maximilian Alvarez. He is the Poverty of Theory columnist at The Baffler, where his most recent writing is entitled The Death of Media. Find out more about Max at activeforgetting.com and follow him on Twitter at Maximilian underscore ALV. Thank you so much for being on our show this week. Uh, Max had an article out a couple of months ago about anti-fascism. This week at The Baffler, he's going to have a follow-up on that article, so make sure you go to The Baffler and read Maximilian's work. It's always fantastic. Thanks so much for being on this is hell thanks Chuck. hi it's this is hell and this is producer alex and you are listening to the best of capitalism part two a best of this is hell episode we are back next week with live shows happy new year concentration of wealth through monopolization of the u.s economy has brought disparity and inequality redistributing wealth to the richest while threatening our liberties and democracy yes it's that bad. Here to tell us how bad it is and what can be done, Stacy Mitchell posted the articles at The Nation, headlined, Amazon doesn't just want to dominate the market, it wants to become the market, and six ways to rein in today's toxic monopolies. Stacy is co-director at the Institute for Local Self-Reliance. Welcome to This Is Hell, Stacy. It's great to be here. You can follow Stacy on Twitter at Stacy F Mitchell, and she also, and you can find out more about her organization by going to ilsr.org. You start with your your article on Amazon uh, by writing about Gazelle Sports, a Kalamazoo-based running shoe and apparel company that started in 1985, grown steadily over decades, adding locations, more than uh, 170 employees. But then in 2014, sales took a downward turn. The problem wasn't so much that customers had made a conscious decision to buy their running gear elsewhere, founder Chris lampin Crowell says. Rather, a number were doing more of their overall shopping on 
Amazon. So eventually, with uh, sales flagging and staff reductions underway, the founder decided that he may, had to make the what seemed like a necessary decision. Gazelle Sports would join Amazon Marketplace, becoming a third-party seller on the digital giant's platform. How much does selling on Amazon, while it may get you out to a larger number of people, who knows, it might actually increase your sales, but how much does it cost to the seller? What is the cost to the seller for selling on Amazon? Well, the straight up cost is that Amazon takes about 15% of every sale. Typically, it varies by product, but it's usually about 15%. And then if you use their fulfillment services, they also charge you a bunch of fees for warehousing and handling your goods. And they increasingly have pretty strong incentives to get people to use their fulfillment services. But the more um, insidious thing I think that's going on is that Amazon uses the knowledge that it gains from the people that the businesses that rely on its platform to compete against them. And that's the really uh, dangerous part of this company. How do they compete against them? That's the part that I found really fascinating because it seems like Amazon isn't in competition with anybody except for the people whose products they sell. Yeah, I mean, we, I think we tend to think of Amazon as a retailer, and, and certainly it is. I mean, they, they captured half of all online spending last year. One out of every $2 that Americans spent online went to Amazon. They're the largest seller of books and toys and almost uh, clothing and, and consumer electronics of any retailer online or off. So they do sell a lot of stuff, but the key to really understanding Amazon is that they want to control the underlying infrastructure of the economy. They want to control the rails, if you will, that other companies need to use in order to reach consumers. And so the thing that I think is the most startling and revealing statistic about Amazon is that half of more than half of all online shopping searches start at Amazon. So it used to be even just a few years ago that when people wanted a particular product, um, what they would do is go to a search engine like Google or something, and they would type in the name of the product, and then they would get different results. And Amazon would be among them, but there would also be other businesses. Now, more than half of people are simply starting their shopping right on Amazon. And if you're an independent retailer or a major chain or a producer of uh, goods of any any size, what that means is that if you want to continue to, you know, your options are you continue to have your own website out there uh, on a road that is less and less traveled. It's like having your shingle hanging out on a dirt road with a few people going by. Um, or you become a seller on Amazon's platform. And the peril of that is that Amazon competes against you. They sell the same stuff that you do. And there's, you know, there's a research done by Harvard Business School that found that um, is when a new seller comes onto the platform, Amazon monitors their products and within a few weeks takes their you know top 25% of their products and brings it into its own inventory. Or another example is that Amazon is increasingly manufacturing its own goods. So they're now Amazon branded batteries and a lot, they have seven different lines of apparel and all of these different goods. So when they see a hot product, sometimes they just knock it off and start producing it themselves. And then, of course, you look at the search results, guess who's at the top of the search results? It's the Amazon product, you know, or if you order 
batteries on Alexa, Alexa doesn't say back to you, hey, do you want Energizer or Duracell? The only batteries that you're going to get shipped to your door are Amazon batteries. Um, So this is really a strategy for surveilling the rest of commerce, learning how it's done, and then then taking over uh, the most lucrative pieces for itself. So do you believe then that Amazon is or is acting like a monopoly? And if they're not, how do they fall short of being a monopoly? They have monopoly power in online commerce. Uh, you know, clearly with that kind of market share and that ability, you know, essentially if, if we think of what a monopoly is, is, you know, a company that, you know, has the ability to dictate terms to other players in the market. Um, and in the case of online commerce, Amazon has that capacity. Uh, it certainly is a monopoly in books. I think that's uh, undeniable. They sell half of all books, both print and e- e-books. They have a, about 70% of the market for e-books. Uh, and then they're this major uh, gatekeeper. They have this monopoly power with regard to online commerce. With the acquisition of Whole Foods, uh, some months ago, they're now extending that power into offline retail as well. And that's the Amazon police now getting Stacy, so she'll have to be leaving. <laughs> uh, so you write that Jeff Bezos has designed the company for a far more radical goal than merely dominating markets. He's built Amazon to replace markets. His vision is for Amazon to become the underlying infrastructure that commerce runs on. How much control would that give Bezos? And by extension, Amazon, over the U.S. economy. Yeah, I mean, Jeff Bezos is now the richest person in the world. Uh, he has an enormous amount of, of power, and, and Amazon does does too. I mean, we've talked some about their control of the online platform um, and the sort of infrastructure that other businesses need, but they have other big pieces of infrastructure too. Uh, one is cloud computing. Uh, Amazon uh, uh, controls about a third of the world's cloud computing capacity. Everybody from Netflix to the CIA actually resi- relies on Amazon to manage and, and uh, uh, send out their data. Um, and Amazon is increasingly becoming a shipper. So they are building out their package delivery and shipping infrastructure and going after UPS and the post office. And so we can imagine a future in which, you know, you want to start up a business um, and you need to use Amazon to manage your data. You need to use its platform in order to reach consumers and you need to rely on its shipping service in order to get your goods to doorsteps. Um, what you have there is not a market, right? I mean, this is not an open market in which uh, people can buy and sell goods uh, freely and of their of their own accord. What you have is a private arena that is controlled by this single player. It would be as if Walmart not only came into your town and set up this big store on the edge of, of, of town, but also bought up all the other real estate and got to decide you know, which companies got the choice spots, how much rent they had to pay, when they could be open, what they could sell. I mean, this is essentially a kind of uh, dictator, a kind of king over uh, the commercial sphere. And that's what Jeff Bezos has designed his company to do. So, I mean, they still provide uh, convenience. They provide, at times, low prices. Why is giving that much control to one company not a good thing for the American consumer? Because as you point out in your writing, is uh, since the 1980s, since the early 1980s, the focus of for mergers and for antitrust suits has been, are they able to uh, give us low prices? And if they're able to give us lower prices, 
then the consumer isn't being hurt. So why is giving that much control to one company not a good thing for the American consumer? I think there are some reasons that as consumers, we should be alarmed about this. I mean, Amazon increasingly picks winners and losers in the economy. And so which books make it to market, which authors are able to succeed, you know, which companies' products are able to succeed, Amazon increasingly controls that because they decide how those books or those products appear uh, in, in their search engine. So as consumers, that should be alarming because I, I, I think there's, you know, we did a, a report a, about a year ago, year and a half ago, where we interviewed a lot of different manufacturers, small uh, and mid-sized manufacturers of a range of different products. And they all talked about how Amazon's control of the market is really impeding their ability to create new products, to invent new products, and to, to find a way for those products to reach the market, that it's become a lot harder to introduce new products. And that's uh, concerning in the context of, you know, uh, toys and apparel and other kinds of goods, but it's really concerning in the context of books. So as consumers, I think we should be thoughtful about uh, allowing one company to have that much power. But the other thing that's really important, and I think this gets to where our antitrust law has gone wrong in recent decades, which is that we've, uh, you know, we've, we've conditioned ourselves in, in the way that that antitrust enforcement has been working since about the 1980s, is that the only real question that gets asked is, will this be more efficient? You know, will this merger of two companies result in more efficiency? Will it result in lower prices? But we're not just consumers. We're also producers of value. We're people who need to earn a living, um, who want to have opportunities to start our own businesses or to get a job with a decent wage, who want to live in communities that have um, a certain amount of economic vitality and agency. I mean, we are all these other things in the marketplace, and there is a growing body of evidence that shows that concentrated power, that the fact that there are so many industries now just dominated by a very small number of companies, that that is resulting in a reduction in wages, that it has led to a situation in which the number of new businesses that start every year in this country is now one-third the rate that it was in the 1980s, that it's really slowed the job creation um, engine, the engine of job creation. So there are all these ways in which the power of a company like Amazon and other monopoly companies is really hurting us as producers, as people who need to earn a living. You mentioned new products, and I just wanted to touch on this really quickly. Um, what's wrong with keeping new products out of the economy? Don't we already have enough products as it is? Yeah, well, it's terrible to think about that in the context of a new author, right? I mean, you go to talk, you talk to people who uh, many authors, you know, novelists and and people who do nonfiction as well, will talk about how they first got success, which was typically that there was an independent bookstore or a few different local bookstores that that came across their book, liked it, and started hand selling it to customers, like basically saying to their customers, "I think you'd really like this." And then it would grow from there and eventually would be, um, you know, went on to, to, to success. The pathway now for a book to find an audience has been very constricted, uh, much more constricted than, than it used to be because there are just fewer outlets for books. And trying to be, you know, get some visibility in the context of Amazon is very difficult. There's actually been some research on this um, where, where it found that if you, 
if you're if you're shopping in an independent bookstore, you're about three times as likely to discover a book that you didn't know about that you want to read than if you're shopping on Amazon. And this applies across uh, across the board. One of the categories of manufacturers that we did a, a bunch of interviews with were small and mid-sized toy manufacturers, and that's a sector where there's a lot of innovation. You're coming up with new and inventive toys. Um, and it's also a sector that has a lot of these small and mid-scale companies that are actually based in the U.S. and have, have jobs here producing goods. Uh, and they describe sort of the same thing, that they're just being increasingly squeezed. The margin is being squeezed by Amazon, so they have less resources to invent new things. But then they also say it's really impossible to introduce a new product on Amazon because the trick is, how does anyone even know that that product exists? It's one thing. Amazon is incredibly um, useful for search. If you know what you want, you can get right to it. But it's terrible for discovery. Um, independent stores are a lot better. Independent toy stores are great for discovery. I mean, this is the way things get introduced. But we just, you know, we did a survey last year of about 3,000 independent retailers nationally, and 90% of them say that Amazon is is a significant threat to their business. You know, much more so than chains and Walmart and Target are. So, I mean, while you're re- replying to that, I couldn't help but think, uh, to what degree can Amazon's continuing growth lead to privatized censorship, circumventing freedom of press and freedom of speech guarantees that we have? How much can their not being challenged as a monopoly lead to some of our basic freedoms being completely undermined in the same way that a government could censor? Yeah, I think the the notion of government is a really interesting one here because in a, in effect, you know, when I describe this sort of private arena that's not really a market but a, a, a thing that Amazon sets the rules for, um, it's acting like a government, right? I mean, you know, the, a market should be an open place that's governed by public rules, rules that we set collectively about how that market is going to work. Um, but Amazon's moving us to this world in which it's a private market, and it is the government effectively setting those terms. I think your notion about speech is really important too um, and really speaks to this larger problem of um, what people are referring to as the platform monopolies, which is basically Google, Facebook, and Amazon. Uh, these companies that have become you know, the, the platform in which other trade as well as the sharing of information and ideas in which our, our communications are mediated, um, they are the, the companies that now control those platforms and set the terms for them. And I think, it, it, you know, that kind of centralization of power is quite alarming in the context of, you know, essentially having these private entities that are able to uh, that, that insert themselves and in, in mediate our interactions with, un, with one another, as well as our access to news and information. When FDR used antitrust laws, he was concerned about what he called industrial dictatorship. How much political will do you think there is today to break up any industrial dictatorship that may be taking place in the U.S. today? There is more and more. In the last couple of years, this issue has really taken off. I mean, I'm I'm pretty excited and uh, and feeling pretty optimistic about where things are, are headed. It is going to take 
popular pressure, to be sure. And that's why I think as citizens, we've really got to become active on this issue and um, and start talking about monopoly and anti-monopoly policy more and more. Um, so, you know, we've seen on, on the left, we've seen uh, Senator Elizabeth Warren gave a major speech on uh, antitrust and monopoly uh, in, in 2016. And it was really a headline-grabbing speech in which she uh, laid out uh, a, a, a really a call to, to think about um, antitrust, not just in consumer terms, but what it means to competition, what it means to small businesses, to workers, and to, to democracy. And it was it's a really terrific speech. And it set off a whole uh, movement within the Democratic Party uh, last fall when they they released you know three uh, sort of planks of of uh, for, for their economic policy. Anti-monopoly was uh, one of those three planks, uh, and that was a big breakthrough. Last year, antitrust was in the Democratic Party platform for the first time in over 25 years. Uh, it was absent for all of those years, and now it's back. So there's some really good signs of some movement, and this is also interestingly happening among conservatives as well. So, um, you know, there's a the attorney general of Missouri, who is a Republican, has opened an antitrust investigation of Google. Um, it's one of the first investigations looking at platform monopolies. Um, and, you know, we should remember that some of our most historically, some of our most important antitrust cases actually started with state attorneys general. Um, so I think that this, you know, this issue really speaks to core American values, whether you're concerned about equality and, and, and opportunity, whether you're concerned about liberty and the, and the freedom to, to be able to go out as a business and have a, a fair marketplace or as a worker and have a fair marketplace, um, and, and whether you're concerned about democracy and the notion that we are the ones who ought to structure the kind of economy that we live in and not uh, these private overlords. And the importance and power of state politics and not just focusing on local politics and local elections and federal politics and federal elections. But you write that by the time Jeff Bezos was setting up his book selling operation on the Internet, uh, these laws, these antitrust laws were no longer being enforced in accordance with their original purpose. In the 1970s, an ideological revolution swept through the fields of law and economics, led by the conservative legal scholar and former Nixon solicitor general Robert Bork, among others. This new school of thought dismissed uh, concerns about the impact of monopolies on the rights of citizens and even on competition. So are antitrust laws the same as they were in FDR's era, but they're just now being interpreted dif differently? That's exactly right. The really good news about this is that our antitrust laws are all still there. They are as re robust as they were um, from the 1930s, you know, through to the 1980s. Um, and what changed is that there was this uh, this shift in how we interpreted and, and enforced those laws, and that began in the 1980s and has continued under both Republicans and Democrats. Uh, but there is a real opportunity there to uh, recover those laws and go back to having a more robust approach to monopolies that encompasses more than just this concern about efficiency, but really gets to this broader range of harms. So uh, how much uh, was this change in the way that anti-monopoly law was viewed and practiced? How much was that change a bipartisan effort? 
It was a bipartisan effort. I mean, I think on the one hand, you know, uh, you mentioned Robert Bork, a prominent conservative legal scholar who in many respects is an architect of the, you know, the, of the changes that happened in antitrust, which were really quite radical. I mean, it was, uh, you know, really an abandoning of what the law's original intentions were and a, and a rewriting that, the, you know, the, the nature of them through how they're interpreted and enforced. You know, he led that, um, and it was Reagan who then codified those changes. But there was a an ascendant faction of liberals who wholeheartedly endorsed that. Um, and those that group of liberals came to take over the Democratic Party. They played a major role in the election of Bill Clinton, who not only um, continued Reagan's approach to antitrust, but you'll recall he also um, overturned the Depression-era banking laws and allowed and, and, and was a champion for consolidation in the banking industry. Uh, he overturned our media laws uh, and so ushered in this era of, of mergers and consolidation in the media industry. And so the Democratic Party has played a, you know, a fairly equal role in this process and done so out of this, this you know, mistaken notion, I think, that uh, big business would be good for society, that big business would be good for consumers. And when we look now and see what's happened to wages, what's happened to opportunity, this collapse in local business, this loss of agency at the local level, how many communities that they, you know, people feel like the fates of the place that they live is controlled by these outside forces, you know, and, and that's, you know, there's something about that that is just so toxic to democracy and I think really shows in our politics now. So I think we've really learned that this was a bad road to go down. And I'm encouraged by the signs that Democrats certainly, and, and at least some Republicans, are re- recognizing uh, that we need to look at this again. And you're right how a- Amazon has been allowed to grow using tactics that would once have drawn antitrust scrutiny. What tactics would have in the past drawn antitrust scrutiny, and how aggressive has Amazon been in trying to take over the market? Yeah, I mean, one of the things that Amazon has done consistently throughout its history that would have been uh, uh, drawn antitrust uh, scrutiny in an earlier era is selling below cost. So Amazon did this in books where it consistently sold books at a loss for years. Um, it racked up about $6 billion in losses uh, in its its first few years in business, and, and investors were happy to let that happen because they recognized that they would profit later on. But the result of selling books at a loss was that all these other bookstores couldn't compete. And, you know, one of the major chains has closed. Barnes & Noble is sort of on life support. Um, independent bookstores lost a lot of numbers. They've come back a little bit in recent years, but Amazon basically just sold books at a loss until it took over the market and nobody else can compete. If you're a small store and you got to pay your bills at the end of the month, I mean, you can't, you can't do that. You don't have those same deep pockets. Amazon has done that as an acquisition strategy as well. And so when upstart competitors have come along that challenged it in online retail, and a good example of this is Zappos, the shoe retailer, you know, Zappos came along and became really popular around 2005, six, seven, um, as this shoe company that people liked. And Amazon went to them and said, "We'd like to buy you." And the folks at Zappos said, "We're not interested." And so Amazon then proceeded to sell shoes at a loss um, and to offer free over overnight shipping. And they also would offer like a goodie, a free 
uh, a free rebate to anyone who bought shoes on their site. They lost an estimated $150 million selling shoes below cost. Zappos limping along, unable to, uh, to, to engage in a similar tactic, uh, eventually gave in and sold to Amazon. So Zappos is now Amazon. Amazon has done this repeatedly with different sectors in order to take, take over those sectors. That is, is known in antitrust law as predatory pricing, when you price below cost in order to eliminate competition. That's a violation of the law. Um, that's the kind of thing that we haven't been prosecuting, uh, and and we should be. And you mentioned how so they're a threat to competition. Uh, they're a threat to choice uh, through like the Alexa service, where you say I want batteries, and they just choose the batteries that you're going to get. You don't get the choice yourself. And they're also a threat to small businesses, as you point out. What happens to the economy when competition is muted, choice is lost, and small businesses are no longer an essential part of the economy? Well, what we've seen is is growing inequality. Um, I mean, I think one of the most striking things about uh, where we are right now is, you know, how many regions of the country have been left behind. I mean, there are just a few cities that are really gaining jobs, and then large swaths of the country, um, you know, uh, other cities, small towns, rural areas that have simply been left behind. You know, we're no longer creating new businesses the way that we once were. Um, you know, we think of ourselves as this nation of startups, but in fact, the number of businesses that starts each year is, is two-thirds lower than it was uh, back in the 1980s, and it's been steadily declining. And there's a lot of evidence that this is because there are a few big companies that are using their market power to keep you know, to create a situation in which you can't successfully start a new business and, and have an opportunity to succeed. Most of our new jobs come from new and growing businesses. So there's been this like loss of this pipeline of new jobs. And then that in turn has meant that uh, the big companies that are out there have more power over their workers. And they've used that power to hold down wages. Um, there have been some interesting and, and really alarming studies recently that have shown that in most labor markets, you know, most regions of the country, there are only two or three three companies that are competing in any occupation, and, and there's just not enough competition for uh, employees. And that means employees have less bargaining power and, and companies are able to basically hold down the wage and also force people to accept temporary working arrangements or these kind of gig jobs instead of regular jobs. And so all of this, uh, you know, concentration has increased the power of a few companies and they're, and they're using it against us as workers uh, and as small business owners. And it means for ordinary people, there are less, there are fewer and fewer pathways to get ahead, fewer and fewer opportunities um, to go out there and, and be able to succeed in getting a good job or to, to succeed in starting a business. And for our communities, it means lots of places no longer have their own local businesses, their own, um, you know, regional headquarters of a company. I mean, it's all sort of disappearing, uh, and we're increasingly re reliant on a few big distant companies that, you know, not only sort of dictate what goes on in the economy, but also have a big uh, controlling um, uh, hand in government. And so, you know, the democratic, what, what this means in terms of democracy, I think, is at root the biggest threat here of all. 
And you're right that Amazon isn't just, you know, acting like a monopoly, but it could become a fully automated monopoly. You're right, robots zip around laden with products, while many of the people they interface with are temporary factor, uh, temporary employees. Amazon's call the, Amazon calls these workers seasonal, but in fact, it relies on them year-round. And Chicago is one of 20 cities that are competing to be the site of the so-called HQ2 Amazon facilities, which will supposedly bring up to 50,000 jobs. And whenever they are reported, they're they're called 50,000 well-paying jobs. Mayor Rahm Emanuel and Illinois Governor Bruce Rauner have a plan that would soar over two and a quarter billion dollars in tax cuts, according to estimates by the Chicago readers, Ben Jaravsky. How excited should Chicago or any city be about having Amazon coming to town. After all, right, they're going to give us 50,000 high-paying jobs. Boy, I just, this this whole sweepstakes for, for you know, uh, for, for their new headquarters and the kind of offers that are being put on the table, and you mentioned $2 billion in Chicago. New Jersey's put $5 billion on the table, or excuse me, $7 billion on the table. Uh, Maryland, just outside of D.C., has put $5 billion on the table. Uh, you know, the thing that's, that's striking about Amazon is we tend to think of them as, you know, they, they got where they are because they, they're really clever, and they certainly are, um, and successful in terms of, of what they do. But they have also, since day one, relied heavily on tax advantages and subsidies. I mean, Amazon's already picked up a billion dollars in subsidies to build its warehouses uh, in the last few years. These are you know, deals that, that different cities around the country have given it to you know, build a warehouse. And now with this headquarters sweepstakes, they're really ramping that up um, and extracting these offers from cities of just, you know, astronomical sums of money. It is unclear to me that the 50,000 jobs are really, you know, they say 50,000 jobs over 10 years. Maybe. I mean, you know, they don't have that many jobs in Seattle. So, you know, it's a, it's a projection at best. Um, it's not clear whether cities, because Amazon has insisted on um, these these bids being undertaken, <clears throat> excuse me, in the dark without any public disclosures, it's unclear to me that cities are in, in a position to insist on a certain number of jobs in exchange for those deals. Um, meanwhile, Amazon is going to come in. I mean, you think about all of the businesses in in Chicago where you know th- those businesses have grown through their own investment, their sweat and hard work, um, and they're now watching their city potentially take their tax money and give it to one of their most daunting competitors. Um, you know, there's nothing on the table like that for small and local businesses or uh, you know other kinds of, of companies in Chicago. I mean, really, what you have is is you know a, a lot of cities. Uh, you know, wooing and groveling here with the idea of increasing the power of a company that already is a monopoly. Those 50,000 jobs, even if they do come to pass, most of them are not going to go to existing residents. I mean, they will go to people who have very particular skills that will likely move to the chosen city to take those jobs. And so for most people who live in Chicago, there isn't going to be any upside to this, but there's going to be a lot of downside in that um, you know, uh, housing costs are going to soar even higher. The the average, uh, the the median value of a home in Seattle now is over seven hundred thousand um, dollars. They've seen the uh, number of unsheltered homeless people in Seattle has just soared through the roof. Um, there are problems with this with the city trying to keep up with 
um, road construction and infrastructure because of the strain that it has put on on things. Um, so there is this sort of gentrifying force and this uh, you know pressure, upward pressure on the cost of living that the receiving city is going to have to shoulder. Um, and instead of getting Amazon to pony up money to help offset those costs and to make the investment that it should be making in the place that it locates to ensure that that community continues to be healthy and thriving. Instead of that happening, we have exactly the reverse. We have the city offering Amazon money. I mean, it just doesn't make any sense to me at all. So if a politician wants to bring jobs back or ensure that they are not lost, how much can they do that by pursuing antitrust litigation against Amazon? Yeah, I mean, I think when we look at what is it? What, is, what do we need in order to have a truly thriving economy? Um, I mean, we have you know, relatively low unemployment right now, but wages haven't budged at all. And that's a you know one indicator that we have a consolidated economy that really isn't uh, uh, competitive enough when it comes to, to workers. And we've got a lot of people, many people who work for Amazon, who are forced into these temporary uh, arrangements. You know, uh, a lot of Amazon's warehouses are staffed by temps. As they move into shipping, they're using um, Amazon Flex drivers. They're called, which are you know similar to an Uber kind of model, where you get a, a two-hour window to deliver packages for a set fee, and you you are just a subcontractor, use your your own car and everything. Um, you know, this is the model that these kinds of monopoly companies have in mind for the future, where you've got a small number of people who benefit. Um, you know, prosperous, uh, uh, you know, a few prosperous communities that uh, that benefit from that and, and everyone else is, is marginalized. Um, so antitrust, I think, is a really key part of a strategy to revive an economy that works for people. Um, it means going after these big concentrated companies and breaking them up so that there's more room in the market for uh, new businesses to grow, for these companies to compete for different workers, and to really also force them to innovate. I mean, we don't know what we're missing in terms of innovation because, you know, tech is now dominated by Google and Amazon, and they go around buying up anybody who might compete with them. You know, so what are we missing out on? We don't even really know. Um, and so that that innovation, that new business creation, uh, competition law, antitrust law is a really critical part of that. It's not the only piece. Uh, you know, not the only tool in the toolbox, but it's a really important one. And we didn't even get a chance to touch on your article, Six Ways to Reign in Today's Toxic Monopolies. So people should check out that writing as well. We've been talking to Stacey Mitchell about her article that appeared at The Nation that was headlined, Amazon doesn't just want to dominate the market, it wants to become the market. You can follow Stacey on Twitter at Stacey F. Mitchell. And as you may or may not remember from being on our show five years ago, our final question for all of our guests is the question from hell, the question we may hate to ask, you may hate to answer, our audience is going to hate your response. So considering the power and the massive uh, corporation that Amazon is, do we all need to stop using Amazon immediately in order to challenge its power? Or would you suggest that we all start buying Amazon stock as apparently nothing's going to stop its incredibly continuing growing power? Oh, dear. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, you know, I, I, I think that that 
people have responded to this article often by asking me, you know, should I get rid of my Prime account? Should we boycott Amazon and so on? And, you know, I'm all for people like rethinking their shopping choices, you know, go out there and support your local retailers. That's a a great idea. But I think, you know, as consumers, we're not very strong. Our, Our consumer muscle is actually pretty weak. And I think one of the ways that corporations have triumphed is they've gotten us to be in this consumer mindset where we see a problem and we, we, the first response we have to it is, what do I do as a consumer? The question we need to ask is, what do we do as citizens? So the thing to do is not to worry so much about your Prime account, although, you know, you might, re- you might rethink that, but is to call your congressperson, you know, is to start talking to your friends and neighbors about monopolies and about corporate power. That's the thing to do. Stacy, I really appreciate you being back on our show this morning. Thank you so much for being on. Check out Stacy's writing over at The Nation. Amazon doesn't just want to dominate the market. It wants to become the market. And there are the article that we didn't get to today, which is really fascinating, Six Ways to Rein in Today's Toxic Monopolies. Thanks so much for being on the show with us. Thank you. Hi, it's This Is Hell, and this is producer Alex. And you are listening to the Best of Capitalism Part 2, a Best of This Is Hell episode. We are back next week with live shows. Happy New Year. Neoliberalism completely reshapes society and what we mean by freedom. It's encroached into every part of our lives, even changing the way we view each other as well as ourselves. Here to help us understand neoliberalism in a way we haven't understood it before, despite the dozens of conversations we've had on it, Writer, teacher, and translator Adam Kotzko is author of Neoliberalism's Demons on the Political Theology of Late Capital. Welcome to This is Hell, Adam. Oh, thanks for having me. Find out more about Adam at Adam Kotzko. That's K-O-T-S-K-O. And you can, uh, uh, .com. And you can follow Adam on Twitter at Adam Kotzko. To what extent do you think the public still views neoliberalism as what you say it was sold as, and that is the most authentic expression of human freedom? Yeah, I think that 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 kind of assumption that neoliberalism is just kind of the way things are and should be um, has really taken a hit. Um, In the 90s, this was widely accepted, but it's been declining over time, and especially in the wake of the financial crisis, I think there was a, a huge blow to the legitimacy of the system. Um, Obama kind of tried to shore things back up and get them back to normal, but I think that the Democrats and the mainstream establishment were really uh, naive about how much um, the people were starting to question the system. How aware do you think the public is of the degree to which neoliberalism has, as you've described, reshaped public policy in arguably every area of life on the model of market competition? Because I've heard the word neoliberalism in the mainstream media so few times that it's like the new N-word, a profanity so profane that nobody dare says it. So how aware is the public even of neoliberalism? Yeah, it is... um the way that it kind of establishes itself as a common sense uh, reality is to go unnamed. It's not a particular thing. It's just the way things are. It's just the way the world works. Um, And I have noticed in talking with my own family who in their own lives experienced a different regime, you know, the pre-1980 kind of uh, post-war Fortis regime, I'll say things like, you know, uh, college used to be virtually free. It's like they don't remember that ever was the case, even though it was. 
like this has transformed during the course of their life, and yet they have almost like retconned their previous life as though this was how it always was. Um, if you use the word itself, neoliberalism, people, you know, their eyes glaze over or whatever. Um, but I think if you describe it to them, if you describe the kind of thing that you mean by it, um, they do recognize that it's um, something that's kind of um, insidious and ever-spreading. Um, a, a good example I like to use to explain to people is the competition among cities uh, to get the new Amazon headquarters and, you know, like competing to offer all these tax incentives or bribes to Amazon um, so that they can bring jobs that aren't really that good. You know, like people just kind of, um, when you bring it to, you know, the concrete actions of government and the fact that every city is kind of flocking to try to get this very dubious benefit. Um, but they feel that they don't have a choice but to participate. Um, that's kind of, um, they start to to pick up on the pattern, and, and I think that they can start to, to see neoliberalism in a lot of other areas, too. You argue that neoliberalism makes a moral claim on us through the soft power of persuasion and voluntary compliance, quote, by emphasizing the value of freedom. In many ways, the neoliberal model of freedom is very narrow. It prizes participation in the market through voluntary transactions and contractual agreements above all else. So what kind of freedom does neoliberal, neoliberalism promise? The freedom to do what? And what happens when freedom becomes commodified or monetized? Well, in practice, it turns out to be um, we have the freedom to do what they expect us to do or else suffer disproportionate consequences. Uh, we have just enough freedom to make us blameworthy if we fail or if we choose wrong, but not enough freedom to actually uh, make a significant difference in the in the system. And so I view it as a as a kind of logic of moral entrapment. Uh, we're just, we're just kind of caught in these perpetual catch twenty twos where yes, I guess I do have to choose to do this, or else I'm going to you know I have to choose to um, participate in the regime of credit, or else. I'm just not going to have access to the kind of funds I need to have a livable life. Um, I need to take out student loans or else I'm just not going to have access to a middle-class income. And they can take all of those decisions that we formally, freely made and say, well, you know, you made your bed, now lie in it. Even though we had no control over the circumstances, there was no real negotiation that went on, there was no dialogue, nothing. It's just kind of, okay, you signed this consent and now you're just like, liable for whatever happens to you. And it's a way of displaying, displacing the blame from uh, the people who actually make the decisions about how things work onto the people who are kind of continually entrapped into making these self-undermining uh, decisions. You write that as for other forms of freedom, particularly the freedom to engage in collective rather than individual action, they're dismissed or even proclaimed contrary to true freedom. But this very narrowness is what grants neoliberalism, as you're pointing out, its remarkable consistency and staying power. Are collective actions then not an expression of freedom under neoliberalism? Are things like marches or protests within neoliberalism not viewed as democratic or are they just not concerned about democracy? I think that they're they're fine with marches or something like that as long as they take place in a very narrowly prescribed setting and they're just viewed as a kind of like self-expression. Um, they don't like um, anything like direct action. Um, I notice every time there's a protest, we're kind of asked to to mourn for all the loss of windows and storefronts or something like this. So something very tragic has happened. 
um, anything that interferes with business and the normal operations of the marketplace is uh, is not allowed under neoliberalism. Um, I think that the way they think of collective action is in neoliberalism, every interaction is kind of a zero sum game. Um, and so if you're participating in a union, um, what they want to present it is that you are somehow missing out on the on your individual opportunity. Like you're exceptional, you should be able to get a raise by yourself. It's somehow cheating or like holding you back if you are um, in a union and collectively bargain with your boss. Um, and similarly for state action, they only view it as something that is somehow restraining freedom, not something that can um, enable us to like make collective decisions about how the world should be. So there's always this kind of um, zero sum between um, individual freedom and collective freedom and free collective freedom is always supposed to lose because it's always somehow going to constrain someone or always like going to not match up with every single individual's desires. And this is a logic that I think a lot of Americans um, find compelling because American society was obviously very individualistic even before the rise of neoliberalism. You write that mainstream liberals, far from defending neoliberalism, insist that it simply does not exist. How do liberals convince themselves that neoliberalism does not exist? Isn't it obvious and readily evident that there's been an ongoing bipartisan policy of privatizing what were traditionally and historically aspects of the public sphere, downsizing government and giving those civic responsibilities to for-profit companies. So I, I don't understand. How can liberals convince themselves that neoliberalism doesn't exist when it seems by all empirical evidence that it does? Yeah, this is another thing. Um, just like I mentioned my relatives kind of retconning history, um, I think mainstream Democrats do as well. They they still want to claim the continuity with the legacy of FDR, um, even though they've they've materially broken with it. I think that one great example of this is this claim that Obamacare somehow completes the welfare state. Um, that was a big talking point when Obamacare was first passed, as though somehow this in this great arc of history we've like completed the New Deal project. But you know, Obamacare is not a welfare state program. It's a very market-based program. It does expand some pre-existing parts of the welfare state, like like Medicaid. But that is a, also Medicaid has been profoundly transformed by neoliberalism into a kind of disciplinary apparatus that, you know, in many states, you have to have a job in order to get it, which kind of is, uh, misses the point of it in many cases. Um, so they just basically blind themselves um, and assume that they're doing what they've already been do always been doing. I think that um, discussions that I have seen where the term is actually used are mainly um, in the context of the Bernie versus Hillary debate. And the assumption among Hillary fans is generally that um, Sanders fans have simply made up the term neoliberalism as a personal slur against uh, Hillary Clinton, who is just a good progressive in the line of FDR and LBJ and Obama, and um, the idea that something has changed or that some type of uh, betrayal has occurred is just ludicrous from that perspective. Um, and I think that since they spend their time in social circles where everybody else believes that, um, it's very difficult for them to see that um, others from the outside see it very differently. So let me ask you kind of a big 
bigger picture question that's a little bit more general, because I, I was thinking about this when I was reading your book. What does it reveal to you about the state of public debate when the discussion is whether something is destructive, like neoliberalism is, or if it exists at all, if it's even something that is even there? Because that sounds like the kind of debate we had and still are having with some people when it comes to climate change. Are liberals in neoliberal denialism? And what does it say about the public debate more generally when one side of the debate is engaged only to the point that they are in denial? Yes, I think that that, that is um, an interesting uh, analogy with climate change denial. And, you know, obviously, uh, if people are debating whether or not climate change is happening, that's like a very bad faith position. And that's just an attempt to like abuse the idea of debate and discussion just to waste everybody's time and run out the clock. Uh, I think that the neoliberal establishment thinks that it can basically wait this out, that it, it can kind of, people will see that Trump is a disaster. They'll forget about the possibility of an alternative from the left and that they can kind of lock it back down and go back to normal. Um, And hence, we see, you know, like the debates within the Democratic Party of trying to minimize or shut down, um, you know, socialist insurgent candidates, of, you know, sticking with very, you know, in many cases, extremely elderly, long-serving, discredited um, conservative Democrats, um, even when, like a younger, fresher candidate with a more progressive platform would almost certainly do better in the in the polls. Um, and I think that this is basically um, they realize that um, that they can't do a full a full defense of themselves, that they can't um, present themselves as what they are and expect that to be um, uh, accepted. That they have to contrast themselves with either the horror of Trump. And I think even going into the midterms now, they're still basically running on Hillary's strategy of, like, you better vote for us or else you're going to get the horror of Trump. You're going to get this kind of punishment for choosing wrong and basically ignoring the fact, uh, either ignoring the fact that a left-wing alternative exists or claiming that it's um, dividing the party and it's going to hand everybody over to Trump again. So it's just kind of a politics of fear and delay and hoping to kind of um, get back their lock on power um, without any kind of positive legitimation anymore. With neoliberalism, did we have a choice? Margaret Thatcher said there is no alternative to neoliberalism. Are we or have we ever been offered a choice? Or has neoliberalism (laughs) imposed upon us more than we chose neoliberalism? You know, I think in the in the 70s, um, during the various economic crises that were happening, um, you know, in terms of the oil crisis and then, you know, stagflation in the U.S., um, neoliberalism offered a solution to some of those problems, um, above all, you know, runaway inflation. Uh, that was something that the Keynesian model was having trouble um, handling. But it wasn't the only uh, solution on the table. And it was not the obviously best solution. Um, there were, you know, strong movements in the 70s and even going into the 80s um, to actually respond to this apparent crisis of the post-war model by, like, 
doubling down on the welfare state by further restraining the role of um, of capitalism in our lives. Um, and you can see this even as late as you know uh, Jesse Jackson's cam- campaign in in 1988. Um, that this idea that there was an alternative was very much alive. I view Thatcher's claim that there is no alternative less as a descriptive statement and more as like a threat. Um, there is no alternative and we will make it so that there is no alternative. I mean, by the time uh, the 90s rolled around, it seems like, uh, you know, once the Democrats had kind of come on board with the neoliberal agenda, uh, which they already kind of were because Carter was already moving in that direction, um, that by that time there really was no alternative and there was very little uh, room for movement um, for a serious alternative. Um, it really took the, the crushing blow of the financial crisis to kind of open up the political space again. Um, and we saw that that space was taken up by very destructive forces initially in the U.S. And I want to get back to the financial crisis in a second, but just how difficult would it be for us to get back to the kind of promises that we saw from, or campaign promises that we saw from Jesse Jackson, the kind of system that we had before neoliberalism. How difficult would that be to unentrench that system from our economic and political system today? It would be very difficult. I think one model that you can see uh, for the difficulty is the experience of Greece uh, when they had their uh, left-wing government installed. And, you know, they wanted to break with all of these neoliberal policies. Um, but the problem is that the kind of um, bureaucratic um, state apparatus was still so hardwired for neoliberalism that they could basically slow walk or, or undermine um, anything that the, the government did. I think that some people have an attitude of almost magical thinking about what's possible if you elect the right people. Um, you know, they're, they're such deeply ingrained, like, cultures, institutional cultures in these bureaucratic settings, the, these forms of expertise that are centered around neoliberalism. I mean, even under Trump, you know, the, the we are the resistance within in the administration, the things that they're pushing back on him on are, like, trade policy and stuff like that. Like, just clearly, um, even in this like bizarre situation, like the neoliberal zombie ideas are still kind of holding sway. Um, And I think that to really thoroughly um, replace those institutional cultures, to legitimate other forms of expertise, um, to kind of remove the stranglehold of, of the Chicago school and the economics profession, like this is a huge, huge task. Um, it's probably the task of a generation, not the task of a single election. Of course, election results are important, and maintaining that kind of momentum and enthusiasm is indispensable. But realistically, this is something that's going to take a generation uh, to dig our way back out of. You blame the 2008 global financial crisis on neoliberalism. If neoliberalism was responsible, why hasn't it been held accountable? Why continue pursuing neoliberalism? Have we simply decided or realized neoliberalism leads to bubbles and bursts and we're fine with that? We're totally fine with the ups and downs of neoliberalism? Well, I mean, obviously, we in the broad sense of people in general are not fine with that, but the people who actually run the world seem to be. I remember 
a quote from Jamie Dimon, the, the CEO of Chase, who somebody asked him, you know, what is a financial crisis? And he said, it's something that happens every five years or so. So the powers that be are very comfortable with the cycle of bubbles and bursts. And, okay, in terms of why didn't we try something different, why wasn't neoliberalism held accountable, who is there to hold them accountable? They are in control of institutional power globally, uh, locally. Um, You know, there is no somehow this outside other space that could, like, hold them accountable. Um, both parties are are thoroughly saturated with this ideology. In a, on a certain real level, you just can't vote against it. Even people who thought they were voting against it with Trump were not, in fact, voting against it. Um, I think you would have been voting against it um, with Sanders, but only in part, because in order to get anything done, he would need the cooperation of the still largely neoliberal Democratic Party. I think if Thatcher used there is no alternative as a threat, over time, it did essentially become true. And the only way to respond to the neoliberal crisis is by further doubling down on neoliberalism. Um, and like, basically, I, I know this is kind of an unpopular position, but I think that within the terms of the neoliberal order, that the bailouts really were the only solution that could have worked in the kind of expeditious manner that was needed to prevent, like, you know, a truly depression-level event. Um, They did, quote, the right thing um, in that setting. But it's just so devastating and demoralizing to think that that should be the right thing or that we've come to such a pass that that is the only answer. And this is why I think, you know, it's it's necessary to to kind of keep building up these new forms of expertise to um, try to build new institutional cultures in addition to kind of electoral politics so that when the next crisis comes, which is inevitable, you know, even Jamie Dimon thinks so, that when it comes, there will be somebody credible who has another answer. You write how we are politically disempowered by neoliberalism. How does neoliberalism disempower us? And was that one of the intentions of neoliberalism, to take the power of democracy away from the public, or was that an unintended consequence? I think it was an intended consequence. Um, When neoliberalism first was being um, inaugurated, they did need a strong popular mandate um, in order to implement these radical changes. And the way they secured this mandate was mostly by kind of cynically capitalizing on racial and gender and sexual-based resentments, at least in the U.S. Once the system was kind of fully installed and booted up, then the goal becomes to maintain this kind of status quo. And what they did was kind of uh, settle into a system where you're offered a choice between two fundamentally similar options. Um, The Democrats and Republicans were both pursuing broadly, um, uh, you know, broadly neoliberal policies. You know, it's easy to imagine, you know, uh, George Bush Sr. implementing NAFTA and the crime bill just, doing basically the exact same policy agenda that Clinton did. Um, So this creates a situation where you have continual, very close elections, because, of course, the electorate can't tell the candidates apart, kind of rightly so. Um, You know, the U.S. went 100 years without an electoral college upset, and we have had two in the neoliberal era. And I think that that is because um, neoliberal electoral politics is 
designed for a narrow victory, designed for very close elections, um, which um, keep the candidate from having any real electoral mandate to do serious change. Um, yeah, so it becomes another one of these dynamics where we're formally offered this choice, but we can only choose you know, the Coke versus Pepsi of neoliberalism and then they get to say, oh, well, we voted for these people and we voted for these policies, and therefore we have no right to complain when they're implemented. You believe neoliberalism is in decline. Whenever I mention that to anybody, or if it comes up in a conversation, a guest says it, or I say it here on the air, I get emails from people saying, why do you think that? It seems like it's completely entrenched. Why do you believe neoliberalism is in decline? What signals have you seen that it is in decline? Well, one signal is that people talk about it, uh, that the, the word can be uttered. Um, I know you, you mentioned that it's not uttered very often, but like saying it at all is a huge change from like the 90s. Um, the fact that it can be viewed as some particular thing rather than just the way the world works, that's already like a chink in the armor. And I think that, um, you know, in the early days of neoliberalism, it did deliver, you know, it, it did deliver on some of its promises. Like, they really did whip inflation. They really did start to deliver economic growth, even though it was subpar compared to the post-war period. Now we've reached a point where not only is neoliberalism not fulfilling its promises, but it's not even bothering to make any promises. Um, like, you know, the Hillary Clinton slogan, America is already great. Um, it feels like she's saying, you know, I'm going to treat you like an adult. I'm going to like let you know there's no possibility of improvement. Um, another sign, I think, that neoliberalism is weakening is that, you know, Obamacare, which was supposedly the only possible health plan that could ever pass. Um, people are realizing that its goal is legitimate, that state kind of um, provision or, or guarantee of access to health care is something that people want, but they also can see that Obamacare as it is, is not delivering it in an efficient and robust way. And this is opening up um, the possibility of something like Medicare for all. Um, the fact that this is a serious point of debate, the fact that most major Democratic candidates are, are endorsing it, you know, something like that kind of actual expansion of the, of the welfare state was something that would have been unthinkable. It was unthinkable when Obama, um, you know, came into office with, you know, a Senate supermajority, but now it's suddenly on the table. Um, I think that basically everything that kind of undermines the sense of inevitability of neoliberalism is a sign that the system can possibly be overthrown and changed. Um, neoliberalism, because it can't really sell itself as a positive, beneficial, um, you know, um, exciting thing, it has to rely on inertia. It has to rely on being the default option. And it, it just doesn't seem like it's the default option in people's minds as much anymore. You write the question of neoliberalism's legitimacy is not an economic or even a political one. It's not simply a matter of tracing the history of the laws and policies that created the neoliberal world, but out of understanding the ways that the neoliberal paradigm exercises its influence. As many commentators have shown, this influence is profound. It goes beyond public policy to shape our own sense of 
ourselves and our self-worth. Back in January, the UK appointed a minister of loneliness. We've talked to Guardian columnist George Monbiot, who has been campaigning against loneliness, and he discussed what he saw as links between loneliness and neoliberalism. Earlier this year, we also spoke with journalist Johan Hari, whose book Lost Connections and Covering the Real Causes of Depression and the Unexpected Solutions argues that depression is caused by neoliberalism. To what extent is neoliberalism's impact on our self-worth causing any public mental health issue? Yeah, I think that the, that, that is a very plausible theory. Um, you know, when you see um, a, a, a kind of culture-wide rise in, in uh, anxiety disorders and depression, you have to say, like, you know, systemic effects have systemic causes. It can't be that suddenly everybody's brain chemistry, like, spontaneously all started working differently. You know, um, mental health is obviously affected by our circumstances. And being in this kind of perpetual competition where your status is never secure, where you're always having to fight for even what you already have, where there's no baseline expectation of security and self-worth, and where it seems like every decision that we make is somehow wrong or somehow un- self-undermining, um, you know, that is extremely uh, stressful and distressing and upsetting. And for people to live in that kind of environment constantly, it's, it's inhuman. And um, I think especially for people who, you know, due to forces beyond their control, um, wind up, you know, underemployed, unemployed, in inescapable debt because they've been told so much that their success depends on their own efforts and on their own choices and that it's their own fault they wound up this way. I mean, people are profoundly, you know, filled with shame. Their self-worth is undermined by by the fact that they are not experiencing the success that is the only thing that um, grants kind of the recognition of self-worth. And I think that yeah, so I think that 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 the the kind of epidemic of anxiety and depression is definitely due to a culture that will just not ever let us rest secure and will never let us have much of a sense of self because we have to constantly be retooling ourselves and rebranding ourselves and selling ourselves and pitching ourselves. Is the debate again? I may touch on this before, but is the debate at the heart of neoliberalism? whether the market is logical, neutral, objective, and democratic, even unquestionably fair, that the market does or does not deserve blame for the bad things that do happen, that it is kind of an objective actor that is above criticism. Is that at the heart of the debate over neoliberalism? Yeah, I think that, you know, very few people will make the case for, like, the providential um, invisible hand anymore, that it actually generates the best outcomes. I think that the neoliberal kind of gambit is to say that it, it delivers the least bad outcomes. It delivers the outcomes that are least likely to be due to kind of explicitly restraining people's freedoms. It's the aggregate of our choices and whatever the market decides must be kind of, you know, the average or the, the kind of compilation of what everybody chose. And to do anything else would be to invite um, arbitrarity and oppression and restraint of freedom. Um, so I think that the positive idea that the invisible hand is granting us the best possible 
um, prosperity or that any other economic system is bound to lead to ruin. Like those kind of things, especially in the wake of the financial crisis, are simply not credible anymore. Um, but still, this kind of legitimation of like, you know, at least I know I'm free. Um, I think that that's still what people are are relying on, um, and I think it's a it's a claim that um, is becoming increasingly hollow in people's minds. And you point out that the Iraq War, uh, Bush's Iraq War, and the Trump administration, those are things that were caused by neoliberalism. But so often people, uh, you point out how commentators put those outside of neoliberalism, that they're somehow independent from or not affected by neoliberalism. What do we miss in our understanding of neoliberalism when we believe that the Iraq war, Bush's war, and the Trump administration are outside of the effects of neoliberalism? What do we miss in our understanding of neoliberalism when we put those outside of it? Yeah, I think that... um I, I tend to think of those type of explanations as like the, the leftover theory of neoliberalism, that somehow there are these institutions or cultural kind of um, cultural institutions that are are leftover, that are outside of the neoliberal sphere, but have somehow persisted, and we can kind of just reactivate them. Um, this is where a lot of magical thinking comes in, in terms of like, well, neoliberalism is about how the economy is better than the state but the state still secretly exists. And so we can like get the state and then we can like implement all these things and finally defeat the economy or something like that. Or like the idea that nationalism or racism are somehow um, prior to neoliberalism and can be like opportunistically harnessed in order to like um, implement some other type of policy. I think that what we're missing is the fact that neoliberalism really is a logic that encompasses all of society and all significant social institutions. The state is integral to neoliberalism. Nationalism is integral to neoliberalism because it's structured around a global economy where nations are competing with each other, for instance. Um, you know, in competition among racial groups, racial hierarchies, those are integral to the neoliberal order as well. If we don't view neoliberalism as a system that encompasses the whole social and political sphere, if we view it as something that's narrowly economic or um, narrowly cosmopolitan versus nationalistic, I think that we we wind up trying to play off one part of neoliberalism against the other and don't really grasp the system in its totality and the, the kind of strategies that would be necessary to dislodge it. You describe neoliberalism as a political theological paradigm, and we don't have time to go throughout your whole idea of political theology, which makes this argument about neoliberalism absolutely fascinating. We're talking to Adam Kotzko, author of Neoliberalism's Demons on the Political Theology of Late Capital. But you describe how neoliberalism as a political theological paradigm that governs every sphere of our social life, not just the state and the economy, but religion, family structure, sexual practice, gender relations, and racialization by means of a logic of demonization. How is demonization at the heart of neoliberalism, and what does that reveal about neoliberalism? Yeah, I have a kind of uh, a very particular definition of, of demonization. It goes beyond just like saying exaggerated negative things about somebody. Um, in the theological tradition, um, I see God as kind of like setting up the demons to fall. They're angels who rebelled against God, but God sets up these conditions that he knows they're going to rebel, and then he blames them for their rebellion. 
And I view this as kind of a good, like, theological image for understanding that logic of moral entrapment that I think is so central to neoliberalism, that it, it makes demons of us all, it demonizes us all in the sense of setting us up to make the wrong decision and then punishing us for making that wrong decision. Um, and so we're always kind of the demons who are, like, taking the blame for the evil in the system, when in reality there's responsibility lies with the people who designed and implement the system. You even point out that you believe that uh, neoliberalism is a, uh, or I'm sorry, today's populism is a heretical variant of neoliberalism. How do you see today's populism, and and do you mean on the left and the right? Uh, how do you see today's populism as a heretical variant of neoliberalism? Yeah, I don't think it's helpful to view populism as kind of a, a two as being equivalent on both sides. Um, I use it to refer only to the right wing um, kind of alternative or so-called alternative. And basically, um, you know, we view heretics as kind of rebels against whatever theological cause they're um, they're heretics too. But really, they're trying to purify the religion. Usually, they're trying to kind of um, they believe it's been hijacked and betrayed, and they want to get to like a more uh, authentic form. And often they do this by exaggerating certain features, you know, kind of, and I think that that's exactly what's happening with right-wing populism, that um, another way of putting it is that it's a parody of neoliberalism. They're actually doubling down on, on the worst features of neoliberalism uh, without um, any, you know, without any genuine alternative emerging. Um, like, Trump is basically like a dumber and more brutal version of the neoliberal order, which in my mind is clearly not uh, a viable alternative simply because it's incoherent and self-undermining. Yeah, and so that's the sense in which I view it as a heresy. How difficult is it, because you you point out this over and over in your book, that neoliberalism is a system of self-legitimation. Are you seeing any cracks in that self-legitimation of neoliberalism today? Yeah, I think the sense that the system is rigged, the sense that the kind of um, benefits are being distributed, you know, arbitrarily or corruptly, that is a huge blow to the system. Um, Inequality was growing profoundly in the 90s, but it never became a politically salient issue because people felt as though the basic outlines of the system were fair and the rewards were being parceled out, you know, like tech visionaries got, you know, became millionaires, but it was cool because they were doing something that was, you know, so, so new and so helpful or whatever. Now, none of that seems to hold anymore. Uh, People seem to realize that it's just a situation where the rich get richer and often off of the, the exploitation of the poor and vulnerable. Um, and so I think that that is the single biggest blow to the legitimacy of the system is that if you can't believe that um, that benefits are being distributed fairly, then the system falls apart. And this is another area where right-wing populism, I think, is kind of like a parody version of of neoliberalism and not a real alternative because they think that um, that benefits are being distributed unfairly in the sense that you know, women and minorities are getting all these advantages and white people are being left behind. Obviously, this is like a made-up complaint, um, but it shows like what they want to do is set up a market where the right people will will finally get rewarded. 
they want like a neoliberalism that works exactly the way that they want it to. Um, when the real, you know, the real break with neoliberalism would be to stop thinking about it in terms of competition and deserving and um, reward and punishment and to start thinking about it as collective social good. We have been speaking with writer, teacher, and translator Adam Kotzko, author of Neoliberalism's Demons on the Political Theology of Late Capital. And as I said at the beginning of our conversation, we have had a lot of discussions on our show about neoliberalism. But Adam's book takes it in a completely different direction of you understanding neoliberalism in a different way. So if you are somebody who is interested in the topic, this is a very unique perspective that we haven't heard here on This Is Hell in the Past. You can find out more about Adam at adamkotsko.com. That's K-O-T-S-K-O. And you can follow Adam on Twitter at Adam Kotzko. One last question for you, Adam. And as we do with all of our guests, it's the question from hell, the question we hate to ask, you might hate to answer, or our audience is going to hate your response. How knowingly do we contribute to or are complicit in neoliberalism if we even fundamentally are opposed to neoliberalism? Because I've talked to a lot of people who are thoroughly disgusted by neoliberalism uh, during our office hours meet and greet that we do every Wednesday night. And then they tell me they're taking an Uber home. So how knowingly do we contribute to or are complicit in neoliberalism, even if we are people who are completely opposed to neoliberalism? I mean, our lives are all saturated with it. You know, I could take a conventional cab rather than an Uber, and I do kind of stubbornly try to do that, but that isn't going to change the overall system. Um, what I want is to, to, you know, it's a very neoliberal perspective, actually, to view it in terms of like individual complicity and blameworthiness or something like that. Um, yes, we are all complicit. Yes, that is how neoliberalism hooks us. Um, and what we need to do is get beyond that kind of blame game and individual responsibility and start um, start coming up with ways to think more collectively. Um, and we are all... Yeah, so, man, I'm kind of stuttering here. I'm sorry. I guess this was a question from hell. But, yes, my <laughs> overall answer is we are all super, super complicit with neoliberalism, and there's very little we can individually do about that. Adam, I really appreciate you being on our show this week. This is a fascinating book, and as I said, it's a completely different perspective on what we've covered on neoliberalism be uh, before. Again, Adam Kotzko is author of neoliberalism's demons. You can find out more about Adam at adamkotzko.com. Thank you so much for being on This Is Hell this week. Well, thank you. Hi, it's This Is Hell, and this is producer Alex, and you are listening to The Best of Capitalism Part 2, a Best of This Is Hell episode. We are back next week with live shows. Happy New Year. The Greek crisis was devastating to Greece in ways that resembled the capital devastation done by war. The nation eventually acquiesced to structural reforms meant, supposedly, to address all of Greece's financial problems, including, most importantly, its debt. So how and why have things actually gotten worse under the management of Greece's crisis than it was during the original crisis itself? Here to help us figure all this out, social activist Pavlos Rufos is author of A Happy Future is a Thing of the Past, The Greek Crisis and Other Disasters. Welcome to This is Hell, Pavlos. Hello, Chuck. Pavlos Hi. will be here in Chicago on Monday, November 19th, and he will be speaking at the Seminary Co-op Bookstores 
at 5751 South Woodlawn, beginning at 6 p.m. You can find Pavlos's entire tour schedule on his Twitter account at PRUFOS, that's P-R-O-U-F-O-S. You write that in May 2017, representatives of the Troika, that's the European Commission, European Central Bank, and the International Monetary Fund, and of the Greek government of Syriza, the independent Greeks, Anil, met to, that's their coalition of the far-right and relatively left organization, uh, the far-right independent Greeks, and the Syriza, the relatively leftward Greeks, Greeks, met to put the final touches to yet another set of austerity measures heralded as necessary structural reforms. This is in May 2017. What were the stated goals of those reforms, and have any of those goals been achieved yet, or are we just impatient? If we go back to 2010, the original purpose of the whole memorandum of agreement, the whole austerity imposed by the Troika, was supposedly to fix the um, terrible uh, economic situation of Greece. And uh, if one looks at that document now in hindsight, I mean, at the moment, people could tell as well, but, you know, you were kind of not allowed to say that. Um, if you looked at the document, the, the idea was that the Greece um, government finances were such terrible shape because of overspending, because of the extreme amount of public employees, that the prime minister at the time declared that he did not have knowledge on how many employees um, Greece, the Greek state employed, which is a ridiculous uh, claim, of course. And um, everything, everything was going bad uh, at that moment. So... It was clearly projected as a Greek problem. Everything um, had to do with the way of um, the, w- the way the government um, dealt with its um, finances, and of course, it had nothing to do at the time with the global economic crisis that had started two years earlier. It had nothing to do with the banking sector. In fact, in the memorandum of agreement, the first document, we read that it was it was the fiscal. Um, indiscipline of the Greek government that was responsible for the banking failures. There's a, a tremendous reversal of, of um, perspective. And, and that, was the, that was the initial idea. Everything in the, in, in the Greek government has been done wrong, it is incompetent, it is ineffective, and the Troika has to come to fix all that. So were, to what extent have they had any success? And because it was only May 2017, are we simply being impatient for them to have the success that we want them to have? Right. Um, let's start by this. It, it has been a complete failure by all accounts, um, not only in terms of the official aims, but in terms of unofficial aims as well. Um, if we start by saying that the, the, the trigger for the um, um, for calling in the financial assistance from the European Commission, the European Central Bank, and the IMF was the amazing amount of debt. Um, it was a, at the time in 2010, 120% of GDP. The debt at this moment, after eight years of tremendous austerity, is close to 180% of GDP. So pretty clearly something has gone wrong over there. Um, apart from that, um, The austerity has devastated the Greek economy. Um, GDP has contracted by more than 25%, a situation that has not been experienced by a country which is not at war. Um, Unemployment 
uh, remains ex extremely high. The highest point it reached was around 25%, one in four people, that means. And for young people, 18 to, 20, to 26, it was closer to 65%. Um, the, the, um, the, the health health sector literally almost completely collapsed. There was a, there was a drastic cut of almost 40% of its budget within the first two years. Taxes have gone up. Um, none, none of those measures, none of this, um, this form of austerity did anything to make the Greek economy, uh, to put the Greek economy in a better place, right? And there has been no uh, renewal. If, if, if the current account balance, for example, let's take this one example, if the current account balance, uh, the, the, the relationship between imports and exports um, Greece is improved and it's somehow balanced at the moment, that is only because imports have completely collapsed. Export have, exports have not risen in any particular way, in any significant way, but imports have collapsed. So some people could use this number to say that the situation is getting better, it actually shows it's just getting worse and worse the whole time. So you write that an agreement was reached and the reforms were formalized, the Supplemental Memorandum of Understanding, essentially updating reform commitments undertaken in 2015. The measures demanded in exchange for another bailout were not simply unreasonable. The Greek economy is expected in the agreement to run a primary surplus budget of 3.5% of gross domestic product per year until 2022, a level never achieved by any government, let alone one decimated by a near decade-long recession. What explains why they would have such unreasonable terms? Did the, did the Troika, were they true believers? Did they truly believe that with their structural reforms, Greece would be able to set a record-breaking budget surplus unlike any ever seen before in government history? To be honest, this is a kind of controversial point, and, and my opinion on it is, is, is also maybe controversial. I think the main conclusion that one can draw from this um, history of the last eight years is that they did not care, right? And this is quite difficult um, to, to comprehend. Um, it, is, it has been proven again and again by other people, not only me. You've had Yanis Varoufakis here. He's made the same point. Um, there was no chance that such a program of austerity would ever work. And it is impossible that they did not know that. So the conclusion is what, what possibly could they have had in mind when enacting such strict um, restructuring of the economy? Um, if, you, if you devastate the public sector by cutting wages by 40%, and the public sector in Greece is so important for the, um, for the economy, for consumption, for loans, for everything, what do you expect? When demand collapses because people do not have access um, to the same, and when their wages are cut and benefits are cut and everyone is trying to um, tighten their budget, so demand collapses, what is going to happen to all the businesses? It is impossible to assume that the, the, the people behind this program did not know that. But I think the reason they chose to, to go down that path is unrelated to Greece in the same way that the crisis management in general in Greece was unrelated to the specific problems of Greece um, that were real, but had um, were, were kind of a side effect in relation to the crisis management organization. I think their main concern in 2010 was to ensure that French and, bank, and German banks' exposure towards the periphery in Greece um, was protected, 
That was the aim of the first memorandum. And it's kind of funny to say that, but it is no longer controversial to make that claim. Today, the ex-head of the Eurogroup, um, Dijsselbloem, he came out a few months ago and admitted the same thing, that the first memorandum was only about French and German banks. Thomas Beiser, the head of the Euro, ex-head of the Euro Working Group, admitted something similar recently. So it's kind of funny to say that things that a lot of people um, had been saying from 2010 onwards um, and were considered radical, insane, irresponsible, are now being admitted by the people who were behind this austerity mechanism. But this is, I think this is the main idea. They had to make sure that there was no um, problem with the over-leveraged banks, German and French in particular, uh, banks in the European sector. And then a while later in 2012, for the second memorandum of agreement, they had to make sure that um, Greece, the possibility of default, would not be contagious to the rest of the Eurozone. And these were the main objectives. From then on, what happened in the Greek economy was not that important because we shouldn't forget the Greek economy represented only 2% of Eurozone GDP. So the one thing I was trying to figure out is, is this due to the idea that they were actually trying to protect the banks as their number one priority? And I don't know if these two things can be separated. Or is this because... The World Bank, or the World Bank, the, the Troika, the IMF, the European Commission, that they, uh, the European Central Bank, that they all apply their remedies to whatever economic problems they have with this kind of cookie cutter approach, without looking at the specific uh, problems within that country. Is this because their priority is banks, or is this? part of the, their whole process is there a problem within their whole process where they look at things as a, resp- as a knee-jerk response instead of looking at what the specific problems are within each economy? Mm. I think you're right. Um, it, it's a bit of both. So on the one hand, the specific problem at the time for um, uh, the heads of the European establishment was to protect the, the failing banks. So that, that was a specific problem. The rest of it, the, the problems, the, the chronic pathogenies of the Greek economy, the a level of incompetence, a level of corruption, all these things, although true, were never of particular interest um, to the Europeans or the IMF. Now, from then on, as soon as um, the, 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 the agreement was made for the financial assistance to proceed in Greece with all the conditionalities, I think what they did is they took the opportunity and I will explain what kind of opportunity that is, Um, they took the opportunity to impose a number of austerity measures and restructuring that had nothing to do with the crisis itself, but were um, very much consistent with the overall plan and, and, um, let's say, structure of the Eurozone from the very beginning, in the early 90s when it was um, signed in with the Maastricht Treaty. So the main coordinates of what the Eurozone was meant to be um, corresponding to a kind of uh, what, what people would call an ordo-liberal or neoliberal um, understanding of modern, modern government and, and economics um, had never been particularly successful throughout the whole period before the crisis. So I think what they did is they took the opportunity now to impose a set of measures that they always wanted And I have to add here, the Greek elites also wanted a similar kind of situation. It was in in collaboration that they did that. And um, they took the opportunity of the crisis, 
the, the exit of Greece from the market of Greece from the market and the imposition of of um, of, of this bailout mechanism in order to achieve things that had not been achieved in the past. But they were, in, in many ways, they were, in all possible ways, they were unrelated to the crisis itself. You write that the debt remains unsustainable. What is meant by the debt being unsustainable? What, what could happen? What, when, it, when it can no longer be sus, uh, sustained, what can happen? What will happen to that debt? Well, according to the um, official um, estimates, which I should add, have been disastrously wrong every time they project something in the future. But let's assume that for this time they're right. The debt in Greece, the way it is now, with the, with the repayment scheme that has been devised, it will be repaid in 2058, right? Um, and that, that, that is what unsustainable means, right? It is literally, um, it is impossible. What, what everyone more or less knows is that Greece cannot repay this debt. Um, it is not possible with the way that the economy is going in Greece, with the recession continuing and everything, it is not possible to repay this debt. The only way that this can work is by promising, as the latest government of Syriza has done, to maintain what you mentioned before, a surplus budget of 3.5, like a constant internal devaluation and internal austerity that cuts all the time from public services, from welfare, from health, from pensions, from wages, whatever it can, in order to service um, those debt payments. While at the same time, everyone knows that the, the debt itself is not sustainable. The IMF um, is, is, was, was literally close to abandoning the whole memorandum agreements and the whole Troika mechanism precisely because it is in its statute that it cannot provide financial assistance to countries that have unsustainable debt. And it was pretty clear from various reports that came out from the IMF that the Greek debt was unsustainable. But by, by devising this, 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 I, this um, new way of, of looking at it and, and, and pretending that a 3.5 surplus budget is possible for, for a long time, um, it's, it's until 2022, and that's what they've agreed so far, they're pretending, everyone's pretending that the, date, the debt is still sustainable. And that gives them the opportunity to use it as a mechanism, as a leverage, in order to impose and continue with austerity. But I think it, it would be hard to find anyone who is seriously looking at Greece um, and looking at the data to actually claim that this debt of 180% of GDP is, is, is sustainable. I mean, in, in 2010, it was 120 and that created, that generated the whole mechanism. It is, it is close to insane to argue that at 180, it actually, you know, suddenly becomes sustainable. So how much success has austerity had historically before being applied to Greece? Uh, how, much had, how much success has austerity had ex- historically as applied by the Troika or even the IMF? Can the IMF point to some great success that proves, yes, austerity in the long run will work at stabilizing what were otherwise unstable economies? Because I can't imagine that the Troika sold this idea to the Sarit's uh, independent Greeks part or, uh, government without having some evidence that they have had success with austerity. It would be interesting to look to, to answer that. We, we, could, we can have a look at the fact that 
after the um, 1997 uh, Asian crisis and after the 2001 revolt in Argentina, which was uh, accompanied by a default to the IMF, the IMF as an institution more or less uh, disappeared for a whole decade. If one looks at the data at which countries uh, requested IMF support throughout the 2000s, there are only two countries in that list, and they are both um, countries that have very close ties with the American um, establishment. It was Turkey and Pakistan, the only two countries that asked for financial assistance. So in many ways, the IMF was more or less discredited by, by, its, um, by its own programs and then the kind of restructuring that they had imposed in other countries, precisely because they were complete failures. So the IMF re was reintroduced as a global, um, and let's say, yeah, mechanism of stability with the 2010 uh, so-called sovereign debt crisis in the Eurozone. So I don't think there is, there is any chance for anyone to come up with data to show that austerity did actually work at some point. Um, I don't know if, if, if that is exactly what you meant, but there is this argument in Europe, for example, that the reason why Germany is doing so well as an economy has to do with the internal austerity that they imposed in 2003-2004 with the so-called Agenda 2010. And this is an argument that was used um, in the case of Greece as well in terms of saying, well, if Germany imposed austerity and, um, they were, and their economy is doing so well, Greece should do the same. What a lot of people are forgetting when mentioning that is that, in fact, what helped Germany rebounds um, to growth from 2003-2004 onwards was a massive increase in their exports towards China. There was a, there was a general dynamism in exports at that time, um, mostly fueled from China, and that is something that greatly benefited Germany. And the, the export sector in Germany was one sector that did not go through this austerity process that is being described. The austerity process in Germany in the 2003 and 2004 um, was mostly about low-wage um, service sector jobs and, and welfare benefit cuts. They had nothing to do with the export industry. So th the one sector which actually supported the, the, the return to growth for Germany was not the one that was um, under austerity. But still, this is the argument that we hear quite a lot today. So then, I mean, because this it seems kind of oversimplistic just to try to apply one uh, government's, one country's economic uh, success to another. What does simply applying German economic success, success to Greece, what is that, and not r recognizing the differences within their economy, what does that reveal to you about the way that decision-making is done amongst the Troika? Well, I think there is a, there is a general agreement amongst um, the, the, the overall establishment in, in Europe and beyond, obviously, but speaking specifically about Europe, there is an agreement, uh, which, is, which is still alive, that this kind of neoliberal, in inverted commas, um, form of, um, of managing the economy, which basically translates to reduce um, public expenditure, reduce the costs of, um, of um, labor, uh, introduce precarious work, part-time contracts, and all that, while at the same time doing privatizations and uh, commodifying a lot of like service sectors like health and etc. There is this general ideology that this is the 
not only the best, but the only way forward. And anything else is doomed to fail. Um, so everyone in, in, in that belongs to this established um, um, powers in, in, in Europe agrees with that, despite the data, right? Um, and that would mean not only Germany and, and, and the others, but the, even in Greece, the, the, the successive governments of Greece that we've had in the past, before the crisis, but even after the crisis, have all more or less um, concluded that this is the only way forward. I, I fail to see why um, in, in a certain way, because it is pretty obvious that it's not working, even for them, one could say. But uh, that is still the, the, the belief that they hold. So you write that despite official statements more or less identical to each other since 2010, hardly anyone even pretends anymore that the reforms undertaken will restore growth or economic viability in Greece. If the memo of understanding uh, signed so far targeted four main areas of economic activity, debt sustainability, the modernization of the state mechanism, growth competitiveness through reduced labor costs and bank stability, they have only succeeded in keeping the insolvent Greek Greek banks afloat and radically lowering labor costs. Do you believe the real intended goal of the structural reforms the Troika imposed upon Greece were to secure banks and cut wages, not to address the needs of the people who were suffering from the economic crisis? Yeah, I think there is, there is no denying that. Um, as I said before, the, the, the the situation in Europe, in general, in Europe, after the 2000-2008 crisis that started from the U.S., uh, but affected immediately affected um, all the big corporations and banks because of the interconnectedness of the global economy today. Um, that um, that had put so much pressure in the banking system of the whole Europe, and uh, that it was imperative to do things to protect it. Greece was one example where. Um, yeah, the German and French banks were particularly heavily exposed, but not the only one, right? Spain, Portugal, Ireland, they were um, heavily exposed there too. And not coincidentally, um, we had similar programs of austerity and um, all the conditionalities that went with um, slightly um, after Greece, a bit later on in all those countries. So there was no denying that this, this was the beginning. Um, this was the, the, the primary aim. And as I said before, on a secondary level, they were particularly interested in, in doing whatever they could to, um, to use this um, um, opportunity, as I said, to further reduce labor costs and impose and, and change working conditions in such a way that would, would be more favorable to their understanding of how the economy um, should be run. So lower labor costs, precarious uh, work, part-time, um, abolish collective bargaining, um, free up the, the, the legislation that protected layoffs in the, in, the, in the sense of like how many layoffs could a company be allowed to make according to the law. So they had all these changes that were, um, yeah, as, as I said before, it, 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 was, it was a separate uh, kind of level of, um, of, of dealing with the economy than, than what was the actual problem at the time, which remained the banking sector throughout the whole of Europe. 
So it didn't. Re- they weren't really as concerned about uh, helping out the people of Greece as they were about securing banks, as they were about cutting wages. Why did they think that that was going to create a huge boom in the economy when it would seem from just, I mean, I'm, not, I'm no economist, it would just seem from the words on the page that that would be devastating to the economy. Why would they think that that would be something that was good for the economy? Well, on the one hand, I would say one way to explain that would be ideological blindness. Um, so I think it's, it's possible when hearing some of those technocrats, it is possible that they actually think that um, yeah, drastically reducing labor costs could actually bring an economy um, back to growth. I think that some of them might actually believe that. On the second hand, what, what is also, I think, relevant in the discussion is they were not, as I said before, they were not that concerned about whether Greek, the Greek economy will be able to regain growth. Um, what they had realized after, let's say, approximately seven or eight years of, of Eurozone, the so-called golden years of the Eurozone, what they had realized is, was that they had created a system that was so structurally imbalanced, and which meant that a lot of countries in the periphery could take advantage of the extremely low borrowing costs that existed within the whole Eurozone and proceed with a kind of credit expansion um, that we saw at the same time all over the world in, in that area. But um, especially in the Eurozone, there was a tremendous credit expansion that created a lot of growth, especially for the countries in the periphery. During the, the, in the period between 2002 and 2006, Greece was growing at an annual rate of 4.3%, which is uh, incredible. And we had similar rates for other countries in the, in the periphery of the Eurozone. But all of that growth was based on low borrowing costs, the low interest rates that the, the Eurozone had created. And what the, the, the people at the top realized at some point is that the, to the extent that these countries could remain within this regime of low borrowing costs, um, they could basically roll over and finance the debt indefinitely, right? And then at some point, the, 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 the credit expansion was over, credit was frozen, the interbank lending um, facilities were, were frozen as well. So the, the, the credit that fueled all this growth in inverted commas uh, was no longer there. Um, and they realized that they could use that opportunity to actually proceed with certain restructuring that um, they, couldn't have, they couldn't have um, achieved in the previous times. You write that if there was ever any plan to revitalize the Greek economy, that would only occur through massive capital consolidation and the reduction of labor costs to the extent of making the economy competitive vis-a-vis the neighboring Balkan states, not vis-a-vis the rest of the Eurozone. What do you mean by massive capital consolidation? Because what I hear is massive in, in inequality and reinforcing and protecting of the elite. Is that what you mean by capital consolidation? Um, no, what I, what I mean in, in, uh, with, with the use of this term is this. Um, Greek is a, Greece is a country that is characterized by very low capital concentration, which basically means, to put it in simple terms, it means that uh, more than 90% of businesses in Greece employ less than 12 people. So we had like very small and medium-sized um, businesses being the backbone of the Greek economy, the, the, the majority of the firms. And that was not only um, um, 
causing problems in terms of like increased profitability, it was also used as it, it was it was a kind of a burden or an obstacle um, towards making grander um, infrastructural um, investments and and whatnot. So capital consolidation in this case would mean that larger firms could take advantage of the um, increased increased reduced um, demand, the collapse of, of, of part of these businesses in order to buy them and, and put them under their control. So that in the business sector, it would work a bit like that. In the banking sector, for example, you have loads of different banks, um, each one competing with their with a, with a, um, yeah, rivals. And what you had in the end was that a lot of these banks um, would fail and then smaller, not smaller, like larger and more um, structurally um, significant banks would take over uh, the clientele and, and everything in order to, um, yeah, further consolidate their position. So that is basically what I mean. I think that it was part of the plan of the restructuring to kind of ensure that there is some kind of consolidation in terms of like who controls um, the business sector, what sort of control there is of the banking sector, and, and, um, and so on and so forth. That was the, the, the main idea. You're right that unfortunately translating the real impact of these dramatic figures on people's lives, the dramatic figures that show how the economy in uh, Greece continues to get worse under crisis management. Again, these are figures that show Greece has witnessed uh, finance, witnessed capital destruction equivalent to that of France or Italy after the Second World War. Telling those stories about those dramatic figures on people's lives has proven elusive. Why has translating that capital destruction into its impact on people's lives proved elusive? Why is it so difficult to explain how bad austerity has been on the daily lives of the people of Greece? Mm. Well, I mean, one of the main reasons is something that I'm I'm also kind of guilty of in in this whole um, conversation that we've had here. We 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 throw out a lot of numbers, like we say, forty percent of GDP and. Um, 25% of GDP went down, 40% of wages went down. You throw these numbers, they might, they might sound um, like tragic, but it doesn't, it doesn't immediately um, confer what, what the problem is about. And it doesn't immediately translate into people thinking, okay, how exactly did people in Greece experience that? What, was the, what were the transformations that happened in their daily lives and in their, their forms of, of, of existence? Um, how do you translate those things? Because, it, as I said, it's, when we throw numbers around, you might, if, you, if you're an economist, if you're pretty much used to those things, you might have a clearer idea of what exactly, how that thing could translate, even though that might actually not be the case. A lot of economists just look at numbers as numbers and nothing else. Um, but in many cases, yes, that, that is one of the problems. Um, just throwing around the numbers doesn't, doesn't really convey... Um, the, the actual impact. And, and that has been kind of um, difficult for people outside of Greece to understand and relate in terms of an everyday um, kind of transformation of their lives, which has been radic- radical and in, in a negative sense. And you tell the story of one of the people's personal lives, 37-year-old Marina, and how since the crisis of 2010, Marina's world has been shattered. In these last seven years, she has lost more than 40% of her income, while her parents have seen their income reduced by 50% as demand has collapsed. Owning property has become a veritable curse as the property tax has increased more than eightfold since 2011. Although real estate prices have fallen by more than 50%, it remains extremely difficult to sell one's property at a reasonable price. 
Incomes are falling dramatically. Real estate value is plummeting. Taxes are going up. You write that in 2017, reflecting the near collapse of the Greek healthcare system, Rena's father died from a cancer that could have been treated had it been detected in time. The public hospitals he attended no longer had the equipment for such tests. So public services are deteriorating while taxes are going up and wages are dropping with high taxes, low wages, poor service, and no hope in sight until, supposedly... 2059, how vulnerable is the Greek government to collapse? Well, that's a good question. Um, from 2010 onwards, all the governments that um, were elected or appointed to implement these austerity measures collapsed after two years. Um, no government managed to sustain itself more than that because precisely because the cost, as has been described, was uh, tremendous. Um, so despite the fact that there were other forms of resistance and social movements, even at the electoral level, people tried to, to reflect this disappointment and express it, and um, governments collapsed. This has not been the case with the latest government. Syriza has been in power for two years, and it doesn't seem to be in the process of collapse at this moment at all. Um, to be honest, it, it's still speculative. There's still another year uh, or so before the, uh, the next election. If I'm right, it's 2019, yes. Um, but as I, as I said, it's speculative, and I don't want to like, put my, my hand the fire on that, but like, um, I wouldn't be surprised if, 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 if Syriza got re-elected, to be honest. Um, and the main reason for that um, has to do with the complete inability of the opposition, uh, the, the, the party of new democracy, the right wing, the democracy, their inability to take advantage of the fact that um, Greece is imposing an austerity which is, has been accelerated in relation to the previous government, uh, but they cannot take advantage of that because they have presented themselves as the party of austerity, as the party that is a natural ally of the European technocrats, and that kind of description and image they have of themselves uh, goes against um, the reality as it is now, because the European technocrats in the IMF are absolutely ecstatic with Syriza. If one reads the, the, the reports of those technocrats of the last um, eight years, it is only with the government of Syriza that you've had a, a properly enthusiastic description of the implementation of austerity. In fact, in, in one of the latest reports, they say that Syriza is not only implementing the measures that were agreed upon, but it's gone beyond has started implementing things that were not part of the, of the um, agreement. So faced with that reality, new democracy is kind of, um, it, it's put in a corner, right? Because what exactly could they claim um, to do better than Syriza when Syriza has such enthusiastic support from Europe and the IMF? They could not actually. The, the best thing they can promise is that they can do austerity even better. And that is not something that's going to go well um, with the electorate in Greece, clearly. So how successful then has Syriza been in co-opting both any alternative from the left or from the right by forming a coalition government with the independent Greeks, with the ANEL? Have they successfully muted both uh, alternatives from both the right and the left? Have they undermined both the far right, the Golden Dawn types that people are afraid of, as well as the far left, the people who created an infrastructure outside of the government after uh, the Greek crisis hit? Well, 
Well, one one needs to remember something very important about Syriza. Um, Syriza was elected in 2015. The social movements that tried to, to put a stop to austerity were basically um, in the period of 2010 and 2012. After February, March of 2012, there were no, there have been no grand, um, big grassroots mobilizations in the streets. Um, that has just simply not been the case. People were exhausted. There was a sense of defeat. There was a sense of depression. And then all these mobilizations that had like, uh, taken people to the streets in the past um, were, were gone. So it took another three years of such a feeling of disillusionment and defeat for the government of Syria to be elected. So their, their relationship to uh, the movement is very small, contrary to what a lot of people are saying. Um, Syriza participated in, the, in, in those social mobilizations as much as anyone else. It did not have the influence that, that people think it did. It was a very tiny faction um, within that generalized social movement. But what it did take advantage of after three years was precisely this, this sense of hopelessness and defeat and the idea that, okay, we have tried everything in terms of like social movements, in terms of resistance, in terms of everyday activities, there is still no, um, um, the, the Troika is, is clearly not moving one inch back. So the last hope or the, the last maybe possibility to do something might be to elect, elect a government that promises to end austerity. Um, that is what Syriza took advantage of. Um, clearly, after, after a while, um, People realized that that was not, not going to be the case. Six months later, Syriza capitulated in the most obvious way. But I think what, what keeps Syriza in the position they are now is precisely the, the continuation of this feeling of defeat that you have in Greece. It's quite unfortunate and sad to, to admit as such, but um, I think this is what retains, Greek, um, retains the, 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 the position of Syriza. Uh, at the moment. It is not some kind of tremendous ability to co-opt um, radical mobilizations. It, it is actually the absence of these mobilizations that keeps Syriza um, staying. Uh, as you were saying earlier about the personal stories of, for instance, 37-year-old Marina, due to the cuts in her wages and her parents' income, she was unable to keep up with her home loan repayment. She has lost the house, but not her debt. You've already explained that public debt, what austerity was supposed to fix, has actually increased under Troika-imposed austerity. Has personal debt as well? Is debt a growing problem not only collectively in Greece, but individually? Well, um, actually, no. Household debt had, uh, was increasing throughout the whole decade or from 2002 onwards, related to the credit expansion that I was explaining before. But from 2010 and, 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 and after, it is, it, it, is, it is almost impossible to get a loan from the bank. So becoming personally indebted is just no longer an option because banks are, are not in a position to give out debts, uh, to give out loans, at least not with any, any uh, sustainable interest rates. Um, so... There hasn't been an actual increase in household debt, but there is, it has remained stable in the sense that people are, are trying to, um, to make ends meet and, and pay um, those amounts that are being owed, which 
they are mostly unable to do at the moment because of the cuts in wages and all that. Um, it's quite significant to note that the, the percentage of non-NPL, the, the, the non-payable um, loans of the banking sector of Greece is 45%. So that basically means 45% of the loans that the, that the banking sector gave out um, in the previous years are, are not being paid back by the people who, who receive them because they are simply unable to do so. And this is one of the reasons why um, uh, you have had in the last year introduced by the government of Syriza for the first time, um, no other government tried to do that before, and they had introduced the, the, the measures of appropriating houses for those people who cannot repay their loans. So um, people who cannot pay back their loans are having their houses confiscated. And, and this is a measure that was tremendously unpopular. That is why there was specific legislation from 2010 onwards to avoid exactly that, because one shouldn't forget that in Greece, the level of home ownership is extremely high. It was 85%. So that means a lot, a lot of people own their own houses, as the, in many cases, the only type of asset that they have, um, the only type of wealth. So it was very politically sensitive and socially um, sensitive issue and one that every other government avoided in the past. But um, for the first time, from 2016 onwards, the Syriza government decided to go ahead and, um, and, and appropriate those houses from the people who could not pay their loans. And this is one of the examples where the Troika was enthusiastic about a government that goes far beyond the agreed measures and introduces new measures of austerity. So I would be remiss in not asking you about the kind of conventional wisdom, the myths that we have, especially here in the Western media, northern media, uh, about uh, what happened in Greece that led to this uh, crisis in capitalism. So what roles did corruption and a lack of modernization play in the downfall of the Greek economy? And how are the origins of the Greek crisis outside of Greece? Well, it's um, you had both, of course, tremendous problems in the Greek economy, its organization, the organization of the state, um, a very rampant system of clientelism. I would be the last one to deny that there were problems. I have absolutely no reason to pretend that the system in Greece or the situation in Greece was for some reason um, beneficial uh, to people or that it was so good that one should return to it. At the same time, what I have tried to argue in the book is that despite these problems, despite corruption, despite a, a, a largely inefficient um, public sector, in whatever that means, um, for a lot of people in Greece, it just meant that their everyday dealings with the state were just um, a constant um, um, source of annoyance. Uh, but despite all these problems, what happened in Greece from 2010 onwards um, had nothing to do with those issues. So the idea that was propagated by a lot of people at the time, and in, in, some, in some cases still is, the idea that the, the restructuring of the economy in Greece would solve all these problems that everyone, or a lot of people at least, had a reason to, to be angry about, um, is just proven to be ridiculous. So my point is, there is no denying that there were very serious problems before 
But what the crisis did was not address those problems because that was never the interest of the people who, um, who, who the, the architects behind the, the crisis management mechanism. And uh, whether people were having a, having a difficult time um, moving around the state sector and, and, and dealing with, with everyday activities and, uh, and the lack of economic um, growth outside credit and all that, that these things might well be true. And it's, it's kind of interesting for people to discuss um, what that meant for people living in Greece at the time. But I think we have to be very careful in, in keeping it strict, strictly disconnected from what the crisis management um, mechanism put in place. You write how Syriza saw the restructuring process as a hiccup. To you, was and is the Greek crisis just a hiccup? And what do the what does Syriza miss when they view this and other supporters of theirs when they view this as just a hiccup? Well, part of the um, the, the, the world view or um, that, that Syriza was projecting in, in 2014, just before the elections, the kind of idea they had when they were promoting that what exactly would um, an end of austerity look like in Greece, right? Because they were promising exactly that. They were going to tear down, tear up the, the, the memorandum agreements and, and end austerity. So, but when, when one looked closely at what they meant by that, their, their, their portrayal of Greece and the economy after austerity was more or less identical to um, the, the image that Greeks had about Greece before the crisis. So you had a situation where there was, um, Syriza was promising that the, the, the banking sector would be made healthy again, so um, loans could be given out. There would be a state mechanism that would protect citizens from the, from the abstract uh, forces and pressures of the global economy. Um, there will be jobs, there will be um, an increase in, in um, yeah, in growth, in, in, in all those numbers. All of that corresponded to a very specific time in Greece, um, and that was the, the so-called golden years. And that's what I mean when I say that they, they, they thought it was a hiccup. So for them, the idea of like finishing with austerity was basically returning to, to the way Greece was just before the crisis. But the problem and what they did not understand or what they did not um, what, what they were not interested in understanding is that the material conditions that created that type of economic growth were no longer there. So the credit expansion that had fueled this growth, as I said before, um, was simply not um, present. There was no possibility to go back to that situation without um, um, having this kind of massive um, expansion of like banking over leveraging um, and giving out loan with, with, with the regime of like low interest rates that existed at the time in the Eurozone. So the only way to replicate that situation would be to turn back time. Um, and that is simply not an option. Is austerity not just within Greece, not within just the Eurozone, is austerity an internationalized class war? For sure, yes. Um, in whatever way one looks at it, 
it is pretty obvious that the, the, the victims of austerity, of restructuring, and the people who suffer the most and immediately and without any hesitation are the poor, the people, the, the wage laborers, the workers, the ones who are forced to forced to survive in this world through um, working for someone else, the ones who are um, in this position. These are the people that are um, directly losing from this situation. Um, at the same time, of course, it is not, it shouldn't be considered straightforward that the, the opposite side, let's say, the bourgeoisie, the, the people at the top, are automatically winning from austerity. And this is one of the contradictions that I think are interesting and are going to play it out um, in the future as well. Um, what the crisis management did for capital was to, to, to consolidate or to, let's say, stabilize the situation. But today, stability in the economy has come to mean only the fact that there is no collapse. That is the only meaning of stability today. It does not mean increased growth. It does not mean increased profitability. Profit rates are not going up in any way whatsoever. So um, the austerity mechanism was good from their own perspective in order to, to crush any kind of um, working class mobilization against um, what was happening. But it, did not, it was not something that automatically translated into higher profitability and better returns for capital. And this is, this is a contradiction that continues today. And this is one of the reasons we see all these different uh, attempts and experimental ways of, of, of approaching the economy, like you have here, for example, with Trump and protectionism, and this idea that you know, there might be a new way of looking at trade that might help. You have um, similar examples of illiberal democracies in, in Eastern Europe with Orban and, and um, in Poland. You have all these different ways. And I think all, all these things are corresponding to the fact that the crisis management maybe managed to stabilize the situation from, from, from going towards a complete collapse, but it did not um, um, rejuvenate the economy on capitalist terms in a way that they, they would have liked. And, and this contradiction remains and, and determines the situation today, I would say. I've got one last question for you, Pavlos. We have been speaking with social activist Pavlos Rufos, author of A Happy Future is a Thing of the Past, The Greek Crisis, and Other Disasters. He's going to be here in Chicago on Monday, November 19th, when he'll be speaking at the Seminary Co-op Bookstores at 5751 South Woodlawn in Hyde Park, beginning at 6 p.m. You can find all of Pavlos's tour schedule at his Twitter account, at PRUFOS, that's R-O-U-F-O-S. One last question for you, Pavlos, and as we do with all of our guests, it's the question from hell, the question we hate to ask, you might hate to answer, or our audience is going to hate your response. So what's been worse for Greece, their economic crisis or that crisis's management? Um, well, I would say... I would say it's, it's the crisis management because the economic crisis itself, the impact, um, could not be separated. I mean, the crisis management was precisely what, what um, came at the same time as the um, economic crisis. The, the, the actual effects and consequences of the global economic crisis in Greece 
were present in terms of like the debt increase, in terms of the deficit and all that. But the moment those things were recognized, the moment that the, the financial problems of Greece were brought to the light and, and in many cases exaggerated, I would say, um, but the moment that happened, the crisis mechanism, the crisis management mechanism was immediately put in place a few, um, a couple of weeks later, in, more or less. So there wasn't, there wasn't, there wasn't even any time to, to, to consider what the, the consequences of the crisis could have been, because immediately um, you had the crisis management. So what we have experienced in Greece since 2010 is this relentless mechanism of austerity and restructuring and, 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 and a constant deterioration of conditions. Um, we haven't had an experience of what the economic crisis would have been without this management, whatever that means. Yeah. Yeah. The Troika supplying uh, problems to solutions and solutions, the horribly failed solutions to problems that only make problems worse, doing that since apparently 1948. I really appreciate it, Pavlos. Thank you so much for being on our show this week. Again, that's social activist Pavlos Rufos, author of A Happy Future is a Thing of the Past, The Greek Crisis, and Other Disasters. Thank you so much for being on our show. And you can see Pavlos here in Chicago on Monday, November 19th, when he'll be speaking at the Seminary Co-op Bookstores, 5751 South Woodlawn, beginning at 6 p.m. in Hyde Park. Thank you so much for being on our show this week. Thank you very much for inviting me. Thank you. Hi, it's This Is Hell, and this is producer Alex. And you are listening to The Best of Capitalism Part 2, a Best of This Is Hell episode. We are back next week with live shows. Happy New Year. The Moral Bankruptcy of Nations. Welcome to the moment of truth, the thirst that is the drink. Adam Smith didn't invent capitalism. I know this, not because I've read The Wealth of Nations, but because I had P.J. O'Rourke read it to me. And I fell asleep a lot. Because P.J.'s voice, while very like the punctuated drone of a bandsaw suffering sporadic power outages in a thunderstorm, cloaked me in its jaggedness like thunder in a thunderstorm and soothed me just because I knew it was there, like a stern god, whether I was paying attention or not. Scottish philosophers fall into two camps, those who shag sheep and those who don't. Adam Smith was by all accounts a non-sheep-shagging Scotsman. It doesn't seem like he shagged anything or anybody. No judgment there. If I were a homosexual Scottish philosopher in the 18th century, I would probably keep it to myself, or even keep it from myself. I'm not saying Smith was gay. I'm saying if I were a gay 18th century Scottish philosopher, I mean, if I were in his shoes, those shiny black slippers with the silver buckles and those saucy white knee socks, I wouldn't confront my sexuality at all. I'd just hang out with my mother a lot. Mr. Smith had a utopian project to examine a world in which a great deal was cruel and wrong and describe it as a world in which everything was on course to be as it should. Smith did not invent capitalism, but rather described an ideal version of it. That's my takeaway. And remember, 
I'm notorious for maliciously misunderstanding the work of those of superior mentality, which includes everyone of any consequence. This essay will be no exception. It's already too late for this essay to be an exception. In the century before Smith wrote his magnum opus, René Descartes, a fancy-pants Frenchman who wore big shirt collars that extended down to his tits, took on the project of doubting everything. I judge Descartes harshly on one point, and that is when he abdicated his doubt for an invented God. He didn't invent God. He just used an old one someone else had invented to bridge the gap between godless mystery and the fact that existence itself exists. He was so close to discovering the meaninglessness of existence, but just as he was about to dig it up, he put the shovel down and said, well, somebody made all this dirt I'm digging around in. Let's just leave it at that. A similar abdication is where I judge Smith, as if I have any business judging so superior a mind, but these are licentious times we live in. Smith was friends with David Hume, who abdicated nothing. I don't say this because Hume was an atheist, but because when he found he couldn't connect the dots from his thought process to some kind of final certainty, he didn't say, well, there's probably a line that goes from here to here. Let's draw it in non-photo blue pencil for now. Hume was a plump man who liked to dress up and pose for portraits. Smith was skinny and didn't like to pose for portraits. Again, no judgment there. Where Smith needs to be judged, especially in the light of all that has happened since 1776, when an inquiry into the nature and causes of the wealth of nations was published, is where his thinking becomes magical. His thinking is anything but magical as he describes the ideal conditions under which small clumps of self-interested actors create wealth out of less valuable raw materials and vie to provide goods to a fragmented but interconnected public market and how such a system would supplant the mercantilism of his time. He seems real good at that, prophetic even. The magical thinking part comes in his idea that somehow, through each actor in the drama seeking only selfish gain under a just government, which is in turn supported in its justness by the population's steadily growing wealth, a kind of equilibrium of wealth distribution would be achieved as the economy steadily expanded. 242 years later, which is ample time to test any theory, we've yet to see a just government appear, let alone steadily growing wealth enjoyed by all self-interested agents. If you don't think poor people have enough self-interest, you haven't been around poor people. It's appealing to imagine that solely by trying to better your own lot, or that of your immediate family, or that of your company, you are somehow making everything better for everyone. It turns out it's good to intend to help people. Altruism, generosity, empathetic behavior, these are necessary parts of the equation, if equation is even the right word. They are necessary ingredients for a society in which ripping people off isn't the dominant activity. Theoretically, at any rate. Very often, I would suggest the majority of the time, in order to do good, to help others, you have to set out to do good. And keep it in mind as your goal. Selfishness is the easy part. We are organisms and seek to persist in this world. And the easier we can make it for ourselves, the better. That's kind of our default setting. Codifying selfishness as our primary way of managing material resources was probably overkill. It's like an alcoholic telling himself, drinking is good. It helps me get the important stuff done. As long as I keep my alcohol level up, I'll be kind to children, I'll create beauty, I'll ennoble humanity. No, you won't, drunk guy. Eventually, everything that stands between you and the bottle is going to go by the wayside. The rest of us non-drunk people will have to take care of the mess you leave in your wake. Capitalism is an alcoholic civilization dominated by smaller alcoholic systems 
each of them trying to stay drunk enough to operate, sometimes raiding each other's liquor cabinets, sometimes hoarding booze out of fear of running out someday. And any goal outside the pursuit and consumption of alcohol is considered an irrelevant distraction at best, at worst, an obstacle to be violently dealt with. Smith posited a capitalism cooperating with a just state. If your utopian system can only exist within a just state, it's fair to accuse you of making a circular argument. Anyone can invent a utopia with a pre-existing utopia watching over it. Smith had other conditions under which this delicate, ideal capitalism would work, such as transparent availability of information and limits on one party's ability to dominate a market. But the main one was that self-interest would stop at the invisible boundary between minding one's private business and the desire to coerce the state. Once self-interest is unleashed, it turns out 242 years later, those boundaries that don't serve the self-interest of capitalists have all but dissolved. How would Smith have gone about weaving altruism and social welfare more assertively into his formula? As we know, when we try to do good, especially on a larger collective scale, we often initiate unintended consequences that aren't so good. But it's become rather clear that the accumulation of control over resources dominates our collective will now and is standing in the way of efforts to save the species from catastrophe, allowing those who've accumulated control of the most resources to seize control of our collective agenda has put our individual and collective survival in jeopardy in ways too numerous to list. Adam Smith really wanted things to work out much better than they have. Sadly, in many ways, he ended up giving philosophical permission for us to excuse our worst instincts and behavior. True, the road to hell is paved with good intentions, but the road to heaven is definitely not paved with bad ones. This has been the moment of truth. Good day. Oh, Jeffy, 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 there's a... All right, thank you for listening to this, The Best of Capitalism Part 2. Um, can't wait to do this again in 2019. Just talking about capitalism. Okay, uh, thank you. Bye. Thank you for listening to This Is Hell. For more interview hell and to support the show, visit thisishell.com. <laughs>